Good evening, everybody. Tonight, we're going to be debating uh, Israel versus Palestine. Who's in the right? We have Justice and Sula versus J.F. Garpy and Hussein. Start us out. Justice, the floor is all yours, buddy. Good evening, everyone. Glad to be here with you all tonight. Uh, first, I'd like to say thank you to the Modern Day, Modern Day Debate Platform uh, in general, James specifically, for organizing this great uh, forum for us. Ryan for moderating for us, um, and with no further comment, I will get going. Uh, tonight we are debating the Palestine versus Israel debate. Um, I don't know what the last minute name of the of the debate is, uh, but in my in my understanding, it is about whether or not Israel has a historic, moral, practical uh, right to exist and to defend itself. Uh, so I'll start with the historic. Uh, my position is is that the Jewish people, otherwise known as the nation of Israel, has been uh, endemic to the region for over 3,000 years. The first uh, archaeological confirmable reference to the state of Israel um, is an Egyptian stele that dates back to 1200 BC, uh, which actually mentions that the Egyptians defeated Israel in a in a battle. Also, a Moabite stone um, known as the Mesha stele. Uh, talks about the Israeli invaders in the ninth century. Um, same thing, we have the Tel Dan stele, is a fragmentary stele containing a Canaanite inscription. Um, is one of the only inscriptions that we have outside of the Bible that references the House of David, also um, Israel as a people. Uh, we also have um, the Kur um, monolite, also a, a Syrian stele, in which it is recorded that the king uh, Ahab of Israel is joining in the Assyrian coalition. Uh, these four steles give us Iron Age evidence of the people of Israel having an extent um, population in the region since time almost immemorial. Um, I also like to mention or to underscore here that we also we see that the these four steles represent the complicated and um, not a lot of many complicated gray areas in the narrative. Um, not only do we see Israel being defeated at one point, but also as an invader and as uh, joining in coalition forces with other uh, regional powers. Um, further on in the history of the of the nation or of the Israeli people, the Jewish people in uh, the territory we now call Palestine, the Alexander the Great took over Jerusalem in 331. Of course, the Jews were already there. The Romans under Pompey took um the nation or took Jerusalem again took Israel over um in 63 BC Vespasian um slash with his son Titus destroyed the temple famously uh, of in Jerusalem the Jewish temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD um the lesser known uh final destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans was done in 132 uh or excuse me 135 AD uh, after the Barcoba revolt, where the Jewish people uh, rose up against um, Roman oppression, um, and uh, Jerusalem was then named renamed Aoe Capitolina, and Judea was renamed as Palestine. Uh, the conflict today between Palestine and Israel has at least its linguistic and um, somewhat uh, power dynamics dating back to this time. Um, the settlers. Uh, <clears throat> Jewish settlers remained in Palestine um, and resettled back into Jerusalem um, after Hadrian died. Uh, Hadrian had made a law that uh, the, the, the Roman emperor who oversaw the destruction of uh, Jerusalem under the when he was quelling the Bar Kokhba revolt 
um, had made an edict not allowing Jews to settle in Jerusalem um, or in the surrounding areas. And those settlers resettled the area uh, after the Roman edicts change. Again, again uh, moving on in history, uh, the Muslim caliph uh, Umar uh, took over Jerusalem in 638 AD. The Jews were definitely there. The First Crusade in 1099 talked about it, uh, the Jews be, being there. Uh, Saladin, famously 88 years later, reconquered Jerusalem in 1187. Again, amnesty to the Jews under Saladin uh, demonstrates that they were definitely there. Um, Khazarians in 1233 uh, famously took over Jerusalem from a temporary holding um, after the Sixth Crusade um, and sacked Jerusalem, killing both Christians and Jews, again, showing that they were most definitely there. Um, the Ottomans ruled the area uh, that we know as Palestine or Israel today from 1516 to 1917. Um, and then that brings us up to the modern times. Uh, when the British took over Palestine from uh, the Ottomans in 1917, uh, there was a declaration that there was an intent to make a Jewish homeland in the area known as Palestine. As we know, there was the mandate for Palestine, which was given to the British uh, Empire by the League of Nations um, to rule uh, equitably the area of Palestine. Um, when the British were giving up their Palestinian mandate, um, there was a UN partition plan that was put into place, uh, which was rejected by the five Arab nations that then um, subsequently invaded the area of Palestine, which then was brought to the 1947-1948 war where uh, the nation of Israel was established. Um, how am I doing for my time? You got 40 I'm seconds left. to hit up. 40 seconds left. Between uh, that time and today, the uh, nation of Israel has uh, fought several wars and has also given many offers of peace to the Palestinian people, um, allowing for a two-state solution, which has often, almost every time, has been rejected. Uh, the historic argument for the, the uh, state of Israel is that the people, the Jewish people, are endemic to the region and have a Ten right seconds. not as col colonizers or as invaders, but as the people who have a right to live just as much as the Palestinians do in that uh, region. Um, I'm going to kick it over to my partner to talk about the practical um, and the moral uh, concepts or respects and the modern modern events. All right. Well, thank you so much for your introductory statement there, Justice. Six minutes on the floor uh, to you, Sula. Uh, thanks for being here. Thank you, Ryan. And a quick correction. My name is Adar Weiner. Sula is the name of my YouTube channel where I happen to uh, facilitate conversations between Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, but it's it's okay because the name on my email is Sulha, so I understand where the mistake came from. And uh, I guess it was an opportunity for me to plug. So thank you for that. Um, you know, before we get started, I just I just want to make it clear that I don't I don't even consider myself to be pro-Israel as much as I consider myself to be pro-peace. And for me, pro-peace means to really care about the well-being of both Israelis and Palestinians um, and, and support their self-determination. But with that, it also means to be very critical of both sides, to recognize that they have both been plagued by poor leadership and a serious lack of self-reflection uh, on, on the sides of their activists. So today I'm not going to make the case that Israel is good and Palestine is bad. I'm I'm going to make the case that the the movement for Palestinian liberation has been uh, misguided and 
entirely counterproductive. So I, I think it's important to explain a certain tension between the two narratives, the Israeli narrative and the P Palestinian narrative. You know, it, Zionism is seen to Israelis as this indigenous rights movement, a movement, a movement to recreate uh, a homeland on the land that Jews are uh, native to. Uh, and against all odds, after thousands of years in exile, uh, successfully achieving this home, this dream of a homeland, a land where they can control their own destiny and ensure their security. While Palestinians view that same movement as a form of settler colonialism that has do done nothing but kill, humiliate, humiliate, and displace them. Understanding this tension is going to be important, important if we want to understand how to move forward effectively. Um, so why has... Why has Palestinian activism been entirely counterproductive? Well, when we assess what Palestinian activism has entailed, what are they asking for? It's been less so for a state of their own. It's been less so for equal rights, as many in the West would suggest. It's been for a Palestinian state from the river to sea, from the river to the sea, not a binational state for both people, but a state for Palestinians by Palestinians, the majority of whom also would like some kind of uh, religious nature to the state, Islamic religious nature. Um, now, uh, with that, there's also, Palestinians have not been shy in their aspiration to rid Jews of the land. Not all Palestinians, but many, a significant amount. And there has not actually been a significant movement of Palestinians that have renounced violence and spoken for Jews remaining on the land. When we look at recent polling, we see that 75% of Palestinians living on the land have supported the October 7th attacks. When we look at another recent poll, we see that over 70% of Palestinians support a Palestinian state from the river to the sea, a Palestinian state. Only 7% support a binational state for both people, which is interesting because most Western activists these days are saying that is the solution. So it just shows how untouched with untouched with the reality they actually are, that they, they, they're pushing a solution that Palestinians themselves don't want. Now, given this reality, and the fact that the, the majority of Palestinian resistance has been violent resistance, and the primary target has been civilians and not uh, military, there's really no case, no strong case to be made that Jews can remain to be safe on the land given the destruction or dismantling of the state of Israel, as many would suggest. Um, and some would like to look back prior to Zionism and show that Jews and Palestinians lived peacefully on the land together. And I would acknowledge that it was times were relatively good, but Jews were second class citizens. Uh, Jews have no intention to become second class citizens again. And it's also, I don't think, so realistic to think that we could turn back the clock and after 100 years of conflict with one another, that we can expect there not to be uh, violence between two populations who have really been fighting and who have immense levels of fear, mistrust, and hate of one another. So given the, the fact that there's no strong case that Jews will remain safe on the land, given the dismantling of the state of Israel, which is the primary call of, of Palestinians, Jews will never consent to that solution. And when we try to force Jews living on the land to the solution, well, we see what that results in, nothing but bloodshed, and bloodshed primarily for Palestinians. And, and it's unfortunate. Uh, it's, it's actually, we can call it tragic. Um, what, what has really been the result of, of Palestinian activism, of, the, of violent resistance? 
It's been more misery for Palestinians, first and foremost. It's been less chance of statehood, loss of land, and a more radicalized Israeli population that is less interested in peace with Palestinians. More than anything, that's what Palestinians have to show for after 100 years of resistance. So I'd like to suggest a, a workable framework, one that we can move forward with. It's one that ensures security for Jews and justice for Palestinians. And we could, we could achieve justice for Palestinians without creating an injustice for Jews, right? It's important to remember that justice and vengeance are not the same thing. So I call on Palestinians and their supporters to support Israel's right to exist. Or I don't even know what it means to have a right to exist. Just the fact that Israel does exist. 20 seconds. 20 seconds. Um, and, and for Israelis to work to transform Israel so it can be a state that is easier for Palestinians to exist. This is the framework that we can move forward with. This is a framework that could lead to security, justice, and peace for all people. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much for your introductory statement. Uh, I will do a little housekeeping and remind everybody, uh, welcome to Modern Day Debate. Hit the like button, hit that subscription button. Uh, we got lots of juicy debates on this channel. Uh, and, you know, if you haven't seen them, definitely go check them out. Uh, but uh, we are a neutral space providing uh, debates on science, politics and religion. Uh, and I'm going to ask uh, Hussein uh, to intro, I think, for the pro-Palestinian side. I, we didn't talk about it before, but I, I, I feel like I can count on you, buddy. So I'm going to put six minutes on the clock and uh, put it on over to you. So thank you for being here, everybody. And the floor is yours, bud. All right. Thanks. Yeah. And uh, thanks for having the debate. Um, so uh, many people want to talk about this and focus solely on Hamas's attacks and the October 7th uh, attacks, excuse me, specifically. Um, however, like uh, Adar had mentioned, uh, this had started long before um, with the creation of Israel. So uh, Zionism actually spawned in 1897. Uh, there's an Arab mayor of the name uh, Yusuf al-Kahali, who wrote to the founder of Zionism, Theodore Herzl. So Yusuf wrote that the Ottoman Empire was the ruler, and I'm paraphrasing this, by the way, ruler of Palestine and that people are sympathetic to the Jewish plight, but there's already a population here and it would create issues within the Middle East had they attempted to create a nation there. So um, Herzl replied to the letter stating, well, you would not even think of harming the population or removing the population. Um, but that wasn't necessarily mentioned, which shows <laughs> Zionist political ideology was always hinged on colonizing and removing the indigenous population. population. Herzl, again, the founder of Zionism, even admitted this in his own uh, diaries, stating he needed they, we needed to remove the population. So at the time um, when he was still formulating his ideas on Zionism, he stated, we shall try to spirit the penniless population, Palestinians, across the border by procuring employment for it in transient countries while denying it any employment in their own country. Um, both the process of exportation and removal of the poor must be carried out discreetly and uh, circumspectly. So... He's readily admitting that the Zionist project is a colonial project and that they wanted to and need to remove the original population there. Um, this was also recognized by other early Zionists and the theme of expulsion has consistently ran through Zionism as well as in the current stage with Netanyahu Bibi, which I don't, it sounds like a deer is more like reasonable on this. So um, in 1905, 
Israel Zangwill, an organizer of Zionism in Britain and one of Zionism's top propagandists, had coined the slogan, a land without a people for a people without a land, um, completely ignoring that people already lived in Palestine. And then he acknowledged in a speech in Manchester when asked about it, um, that, that uh, in fact, people did live there. He stated, we must be prepared either to drive out by sword the Arab tribes in possession as our forefathers did, or grapple with the problem of a large alien population, mostly Mohammeds, Mohammedans, uh, Muslims, accustomed for centuries to despise us, essentially ignoring that Jew, Mizrati Jews, which is a fake term, but I can go into that later, um, had lived there prior, um, like under Saladin and other like Ottoman emperor rule. Anyways, so um, this is ironic, giving Jewish leader figures will admit that Islam and Arabs saved the Jewish people multiple times. Uh, in fact, you guys can look up, there's an essay and multiple lectures given by David Wesserstein, uh, which we can now go forward to the notorious Belfort uh, Declaration. There's some context here. The British government prior to this called the Hussein Makmahun agreed to give Palestine to the Arabs and independence to all Arab speaking nations. Um, so in July 1915, which was uh, before the Belfort Agreement, they had essentially correspondence, which was conditions that they write and revolt against the Ottoman Empire. And he said that he effectively worked for all Arabs in trying to seek land, um, excuse me, freedom and independence um, from all nations east of Egypt, which would include Palestine. So uh, the Balfour Agreement, though, was written between the British government and Walter Rothschild, um, and it was used, excuse me, uh, used as their source of you know, legitimacy, even though two years again, it was uh, stated to go to the Arabs. So <clears throat> this actually as well goes against your idea of liberalism and the right to self-determination, which you would think is odd, considering that this is from Europeans who supposedly espouse liberal values, but instead they took land from another people and promised it to a mostly Ashkenazi Jewish population, which is European Um and we can go into that later as well. Um, and so <clears throat> his majesty's government view the favor of step. Oh, sorry, this is just the Delphor agreement. I was going to read it, but I don't think I'll have the time. So <clears throat> the implication that Jewish white people have the rights to a nation that non-Jews have to a country, despite being there for 2000 years. And even further, if you want to go into DNA with the majority of the Palestinian Arab population having Canaanite DNA. Now there are Jewish people within there who do have Canaanite DNA too. I won't uh, you know, negate that. So um, Britain and the USA rarely admit throughout multiple generations that they needed to fund a colonialist project in the Middle East. There's evidence to show that the British trained Zionist forces in the early stages of Israel development. So if you don't know about this, but Israel trained the Haganah and um, Iragun and Le Levi or Stern group, uh, Stern gang, uh, to actually squash the Arab rebellion in the 30s. And then um, we can go more in that too, but there's a lot about that where how like, um, you know, the Iron Gun and Lehigh Group were labeled terrorist organizations by the West. Um, and so it's ironic that Ten now seconds. Hamas is, okay, um, Hamas is declared a terrorist organization, but if they had learned from their attackers, it seems like uh, terrorism gets you a state, unfortunately. Like I'm not agreeing with it, uh, you guys. So don't quote that, but I'll uh, see my time to grippy. 
All right. He said, seed his time, but you were all out, honestly. Uh, I'm sorry, sorry. <laughs> that's cool. That's cool. I'm just picking. Well, I'll take uh, mine then. Six minutes. Uh, I want to say how much I'm underwhelmed by the argument that we are receiving from the other side here. Uh, is that even a defense of Israel, what we've heard? What we've heard is a theoretical defense of a theoretical Israel. But it certainly isn't a defense of the current Israel and that which has always existed, which is a nation that violates rights, a nation that lies, a nation that uses deception, fraud, and the murder of civilians as part of its military expansionist strategy. And yet we have here people like Justice who come and, and make a case that Jews, some Jews, some Jews were historically present in this area. That is very far from a case that is sufficient to justify a recolonization of the area. And I think he acknowledges it himself at the end of his intro statement when he says Jewish people do not have a right as colonizers, but they are endemic to the region and have an equal right to live in the region. But the fact is that the Jewish people have been unable to benefit of this equal right without depriving the Palestinian civilians from an ability to live. And this goes from last week, from one month ago, and from 80 years ago, back in 1948, at the foundation of Israel is a series of events that has terrorized populations, killed population, ethnically cleansed Palestine for the Jews to be able to establish there. Uh, the job was made by the Haganah then, which was the predecessor of the current military branches of Israel. And this paramilitary organization was committing atrocities. And if you want to hear the people who have committed these atrocities themselves report how disgusted they are at what they had to do, listen to the movie that's on YouTube called 1948 Creation and Catastrophe. It's a brilliant movie. You get to see the people in 1948 who have committed the genocide of the Palestinian on this territory, and you get to hear their own views on this. The problem of Israel's existence is that it has been relying historically on a self-affirmed right that they have to pursue reprisal operations. And that is still what's going on today, although it goes on under a different name. Because reprisal operations was a concept that they were putting in action in 1948 and after in the 50s and 60s, where they would punish basically civilian populations for military attacks that they were the victim of. So a terrorist group attacks the Jews of Israel, the uh, Jews would come back and, uh, and hurt a village. They would hurt children, women, they would hurt everything, everyone that they could find there. And that is what, what is referred to as a reprisal operation, and I don't make it up. It is something that is acknowledged in the history of Israel. A total of 500 to 700 villages of Palestine that were populated by Arabs have been depopulated by the Jews when they established Israel. And that included the movement of 750,000 Arab people who were not let to live where they used to live. A lot of them were just intimidated away, which allows historically the defenders of Israel to say, oh, well, they, they left on their own. But they left on the threat of massacres, massacres that Israel would commit whenever they refused to leave. One example of this is the Kibia massacre, 
occurred during Operation Shoshana. It was a reprisal operation that occurred in October 1953 when Israeli troops under Ariel Sharon attacked a village of Kibia in the West Bank, which was then under Jordan's control. They have massacred women and children. Two-thirds two of the population that was killed that day were women and children. And as far as historical presence of the Jews goes, I don't think it's a particularly good argument because personally, my ancestors lived in France. Uh, personally, you know, I'm a, I'm a Quebecois, I live in Canada. I know that my ancestor lived in France, but at no point would I affirm that my ancestors coming from France gives me a right to step back into France. Uh, by leaving this country and by living intergenerationally in some other nations, I have forget I, I lose my right to occupy France. And if I was to come back to France and start to have to kill and destroy villages to establish my existence in Europe, I would see this as an act of aggression. I would see this as an act of terrorism. And this is exactly what the founders of the Israel that we know today had to do. And it makes no doubt that as the Jews established themselves in the early history of Israel, that before that, it was occupied by a large population of Arabs. Edward Robinson is a explorer, for an, an American biblical scholar who wrote biblical researches in Palestine, and he describes visiting Palestine. He further noted about the village Al-Dawayama, da Dawayima. He further noted it as a Muslim village between the mountains and Gaza, but subject to the government of El Kulil. He visited, uh, Victor Guerin visited it twice, also saw that what was there was a population of Arabs. This par particular village had between different seconds. parts of history, 80 to 700 people. And this is the kind of village that was completely destroyed by the Zionists when they established Israel. So what I say, and I will address later in the conversation, the points of Adar, but what we have here is a very weak case based on philosophical premises that are invalid. And most importantly, it puts aside the real Israel, the one that we see today uh, makes civilians suffer across Gaza. All right. Well, thank you so much for your introductory statement there, JF, uh, and, and to everybody else for their introductory statement. So I will let everybody know in the live chat, uh, keep yourself friendly. Uh, we are going to be doing a Q&A at the end of this discussion. I know that uh, uh, for some people, this is quite a uh, heated uh, topic. So, uh, you know, like I said, try to keep your uh, chats in the live uh, friendly uh, and get those Q&As in now if you want uh, those to be answered nice and early. So uh, I usually kick it over to the other side to launch the open discussion. So Justice uh, and Asula, uh, if you would like to open us up and respond to some of what yeah. you just heard and feel free to jump in at any time here, fellas. Justice, if you're cool with it, I'm happy to take the lead here. Go for it. Cool. So, you know, I noticed the, the primary uh, discussion so far has been about history and hi history has some uh, relevance and uh, is of some interest, but I, I think it's generally doesn't determine the present situation and uh, what we need to do to move forward. Um, in, in fact, uh, you know, both Hussein and JP are currently living in countries that were born on, on the genocide of the, the native population. And there's generally no discussion of dismantling uh, those nations. 
In fact, they talk about transforming um, those countries to better accommodate in indigenous populations. Um, and I would say that there is one distinction, you know, uh, countries like the United States, Canada, and much of South America, they genocided the native populations to the point where there is no longer a demographic concern. There no longer is a conflict. Israel uh, did not genocide the Palestinians. They they did engage in ethnic cleansing. I won't deny that. But the Palestinian population has grown by uh, three and a half X since 1948. Um, so it the, the fact that there is this demographic battle between both populations certainly makes finding a, a, a solution uh, more challenging. But it seems awfully ideologically inconsistent that generally speaking, when we talk about a nation's past crimes, we never talk about dismantling that nation as a response. But when it comes to Israel, that generally is the case being made. So I'm, I'm interested why the distinction here. So I'll, I'll go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I was just going to say, um, I was going to ask you this, um, and it was a part of my uh, initial statement, but I didn't really get to kind of flesh it out more. But um, you're you're mentioning stuff like, you know, sure, we can agree with you, like it would be nice, uh, like a one state, all democracy or a two state solution, whichever the people want to agree, that's fine. But the fact of the matter is, I, I don't see anyone in power in Israel who wants a two state solution. Like when you have Benjamin Netanyahu um, literally stating that uh, with the, in the UN just this year with greater Israel on a map and it includes Gaza and the West Bank. Um, and then you have people on uh, his side of the government who are the ones who retain power currently um, saying things like that. And we need to do like Amalek and ethnically genocide them to the south. And then actually really they um, should just get rid of all of it. And Gaza needs to be um, like made into um, there's even a current Israeli. Um, what's her name? I have it uh, down here, but essentially she said that we need to wipe Gaza off and then annex it and then use it for like uh, their oil and then make it a canal, stuff like that. So there there's, uh, of course, all the normal random people like we want peace, you want peace, I'm sure. Um, the reason we're bringing up history is because in the initial foundation of Israel, um, if you if you look back, the actual population discrepancy is insane. So Arabs uh, had 60% of the uh, majority, I think, or even higher at one point, um, where there's only like 8% ethnic Jews. And then Britain still had promised the whole country to 8%. Um, and then these same Zionists wanted a Jewish supremacist state, right? Like the right to return is only for Jewish people. So like you and me could agree, but like the people in power within Israel, um, like do not agree with you at all right so that's that's where this is and i mean if you want it for me justice wise it should be one palestine and it could be democracy or whatever but uh what were you gonna say well i'd like to give i'd like to weigh out on the justice part um the population of uh what we call it what we refer to as palestine um starting from the 1917s after the after the mandate the league of nations mandate there ended up being sort somewhat of a population war uh where both arabs and jews were immigrating to the area of palestine in record numbers you have huge amounts of arabs coming in from egypt and syria you have large amounts of jews coming in from europe and this is something that has to be addressed by your side that it is not only an insurgence of ashkenazi european jews 
but also an insurgence of Jews from uh, primarily Muslim nations around uh, the, the Palestinian area, as well as a huge influx of Arabs who were largely brought in by British concerns to help manage the oil transit. Um, so it's it, this is a this is a just an ahistorical idea that you had this extremely small population of Jews and this overwhelming population of Arabs. There was an actual uh, population arms race that uh, had was kicked off when the uh, Ottomans lost Palestine to the Brit Britain Britons after the Balfour Declaration. And and if I if I may build on that, you're saying. I think you bring you bring up legitimate points that you know I'd like to speak on. Uh, currently, the you know Israel has not had leadership in in over a decade that has really done much to achieve a two state solution. Uh, but if you if you look at if you look at Israeli sentiment, there's always been over fifty percent of the population supports a two state solution until October seventh. Um, but what we do see is public. And this should give us all hope for 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 the future that public opinion changes year to year, given environmental conditions and given good leadership and hope for a better future. I think we could get public opinion to change. So the, the will on Israel's side for there to be a two state solution has been made clear multiple times in the past with um, with concessions uh, during Oslo, during Camp David Accords, and it's consistently been rejected by Palestinians. Palestinians always claim it's not a good, good enough deal. But when we look at the, the public opinions within Palestinian society, um, at, a, at a record high, it did hit 50% supporting uh, two states. But many of them, their, their version of two states was 48 borders, or it was because uh, let, let's take whatever we can get and then continue fighting uh, for the rest of the land. There, the, the the majority of the energy in Palestinian activism has not been let's live side by side in, in a state next to the Jews. It's let's correct this historic injustice and uh, either just rid the land of Jews or at the at the very best, you know, they could live as second class citizens under 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 us. And and many Palestinians are are clear in their aspiration to do so. So th this sentiment needs to change if we're going to want to achieve a, a two-state solution, or we could look at other other solutions. But the whole idea of two populations who have been in conflict with one another for over 100 years with severe levels of, of fear, mistrust, and hate, all of a sudden being kumbaya, um, you know, I think I think our activism should be grounded in in pragmatism and reality. And I just, that would almost certainly lead to massive amounts of bloodshed, unlike we we've never even seen in, in the conflict. So we should look for solutions that can uh, allow for two distinct populations for their own version of self-determination. And maybe over time, over generations of reconciliation, we could w work towards a more uh, unified state, but I, it shouldn't be a precondition to peace because that stops peace in its tracks. Uh, I agree. I agree that there are solutions for peace that could be explored, but I think that Adar here is really taking uh, a, a lens that is very pro-Israeli and I don't know that he can mirror the same thing on the Palestinian side. I'd like to test you, Adar, because you say the primary target of Palestinian violence being mostly civilians, there cannot be a case for the possibility of a safe existence for Jews remaining safe on that land. Would you be able to say the same thing and understand that a Palestinian could feel the exact same thing, that there is no safety for them as long as the Zionist occupation exists? I could certainly understand that given the 
the history of the conflict Palestinians should have, the, the, the level of fear and hate they have of Israel is certainly understandable, and I wouldn't deny that for a moment. We, we can, though, look to see that 20% of Israel's population are, are Palestinian citizens of Israel who have equal rights. They serve in the Supreme Court. They serve in government. In fact, 50% of doctors and pharmacists in Israel happen to be Palestinian citizens of Israel. So we do have a clear example. And, and these Palestinian citizens of Israel have amongst the best quality of life in, in the entire Middle East. So I think there is a case to be made that uh, g given peace, Palestinians can live uh, safely in the state of Israel as they do today. Um, and and I'm, I'll go on to say, because I do want to be very honest and fair here, it's not like everything is perfect between Jewish and Palestinian citizens of Israel, but this is also because we're two populations who have been in conflict with one another. So there is immense Islamophobia amongst Israeli society, which the second we achieve peace, there will be much less uh, fuel to the fire, which is Islamophobia and, and relations, which are actually generally good between uh, Jewish and Palestinian citizens of Israel will improve given a, a peaceful resolution. Now, when you say there are solutions that are not two-state solutions, do you mean uh, Israel basically taking over all of the lands that are that are the West Bank and Gaza and controlling them and the Palestinians being deported? How does that look, your, your best solution, without the two-state solution? Sure. So I, I generally like to remain solution agnostic, not... For the, for the reason that I care more about a solution being just and providing security uh, and freedom for both sides. So I could support two states. I could support one state if I see it achieving that certain criteria. So in terms of what I think is on the table and, and realistic, I think we could do two states, which is dying. I think it's still possible. I I personally uh, lately have been leading toward, leaning towards a federation solution, which both Canada and United States happen to be federations as well. So this is a, a model that works in many countries, countries of the world. And you could essentially look at this as anywhere from a 12 to 20 state solution that the land divides up into smaller states or cantons, uh, giving local populations much more local autonomy. You could have a sophisticated system of checks and balances. So you could have a Palestinian government, you could have an, an Israeli government, and you could have a dual government. And then you have this, th this solution where you don't have uh, populations who have been fighting for so long, competing over control over one government and one military. And it seems like a sophisticated solution such as this very well may be what we need to start uh, looking at. Now, there, I mean, are always there are always problems in the offers that we've seen from the Israeli side, which is that it always comes at a condition of disarmament. So it, it's my impression that any solution that would pass of that kind would fundamentally disarm and make the Arab populations unable to defend themselves in this federation? Um, I would certainly agree that any solution we come up with is uh, going to have challenges that we will need to solve. But we can. I think everybody here can agree that the current status quo is not sustainable and will always lead to more violence. So we will have to make concessions and, and uh, certain risks as well. I think just some, some solutions pose less risk less risk than others uh that said israel does not have a history of and and again you can find instances but israel does not have a 
a history of attacking Palestinians when it's not a result of a threat or of violence. Um, That's not true. Fact, okay, we 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 we, we could we could talk about this. Uh, we could talk about and 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 I would it, we could get into the Nakba because I think the Nakba is a clear example where Zionists opportunistically uh, took a threat of violence as a, a way to shift the demographics of the land. So I, I'm not even sure we would have a disagreement there. But if we look if we look in modern times. What, where where support for Israel's policies, the policies that harm Palestinians, can all be justified by Israelis because it's perceived as keeping them safe. So the second the security is no longer a concern, public support for any any policy that harms Palestinian will will reduce significantly. So a lot of this yeah, really does what, come down to security. What you're suggesting is that the Palestinians should just give up arms and then possibly just get slaughtered and then forced off all in the hopes that the IDF will actually just, excuse me, honor it and then go for a two-state solution, which like we've all agreed, it sounds like uh, Netanyahu's current control of the government like will not ever agree, especially like hardcore Zionists who their sole um, objective with the state of Israel is a Jewish majority state. So I don't but see how... Like what you're what you're saying is even feasible, especially when every buildup or retaliation by Palestinians has typically been like a, against uh, Israeli aggression. So, for example, like as soon as Hamas got elected, they immediately uh, blockaded and controlled the entire uh, strip. So they're saying, "Oh, we're gonna recede and come cut back, and you're you're gonna have your autonomy again." And then, like in reality, you don't have an autonomy, and then they're gonna put you on like a diet. And then they're going to control the economy. And then meanwhile, they're doing this. They're doing like, by the way, these are like Orwellian terms, guys. Operation Defensive Shield, Cast Lead, Pillar of Defense, like Protective Edge. There, And then even all these, by the way, all stem from the Iron Gun and Stern Gang's active defense. And by active defense, what they mean, again, Orwellian term, they're going to go and out of their way to slaughter villagers to psychologically destroy the Arab population and make it so that they don't want to retaliate, which is insane. Like, I'm going to go and shoot, excuse me, maybe I should say this, uh, you know, JF's uh, like wife, if he had a wife, I don't know, um, right? To stop him from ever attacking me. That's like an insane take. And that's terrible, like, what, terrible example. And then, <laughs> and then the funniest thing is, is all these people, and it makes sense, by the way, that they have these policies, because if you look at Israel's government, everyone who was involved with the Iron Gun, Stern Gang, and Haganah are the leaders. They're the leaders. And so then, of course, they have these insane policies where they're like, yeah, I'm going to go shoot this Palestinian child so that the dad doesn't kill me. Like, uh, like so. But, but but Hussein, I, I don't think there's a case to be made that that current Palestinians currently Palestinians being armed is in any way defend it helping in their defense. I mean, the the arms they have are pale in comparison to what Israel has, and it's not like they they're a military match in any way, shape, or form. So them being unarmed, all that will do is more more than anything reduce their ability to to harm civilians, not not soldiers. Civilians have been the the primary target of, of Palestinian violence. Um, so it, it, the, the difference between the guns they have now um, 
and them not having guns is not going to make the difference in what Israel has the capability of doing to them. And the rockets they shoot on Israel are not shot at military bases. They're shot at civilian population centers. So I, I, I think that it, there, there's not really a strong case to be made that if Palestinians uh, weren't armed, then Israel would somehow take advantage of that because they could very clearly take advantage right now of their military might and and do whatever well, they want. they do. Uh, you know, I'm just I, I look jump at in the right current here. behavior of Israel, just to say quickly, I look at the current behavior of Israel and they do, they do exploit little acts of aggression to respond in disproportionate manners and international humanitarian law states, attacks on military objects must not cause loss of civilian life considered excessive in relation to the direct military advantage anticipated yet they strike hospitals, hundreds of civilians dying from these strikes. And all we have is a couple of Kalachnikovs behind an MRI that they can show on these ridiculous propaganda video. So they definitely have been dishonest in the past and would be even more if Gaza was disarmed. All right, Justice, you had yeah, something to say? Let me jump in here real quick. Yeah, let me jump in real quick here. Response to Hussein. Hussein says, what is the track record that would allow us to believe that Israeli governance would not lead to some massive genocide and this is a hard counterfactual because we don't have a track record of a palestinian government governance uh, or government uh, that would actually be uh, something uh, equitable to equitable to a real government um but the, the counterfactual that we can propose is that the arab population of israel proper is 21 percent who have are invested with full citizen rights, who can vote, who have been elected to the Knesset, who have been um, appointed as um, supreme judges or in the higher courts. So this is the, the counterfactual that if Israel were actually, you know, controlling that area, that they would somehow, you know, uh, promote a genocide and just evict everybody is absolutely not in, in relation with reality. On the other hand, the question needs to be asked, for instance, why doesn't Egypt or uh, Lebanon or Jordan want to accept large amounts of Palestinian refugees. And the answer can be found easily by looking at the history of these refugees that had been previously admitted into these countries. So when the Palestinians actually do have um, a host nation, they cause unrest and violence in their host nations. Um, so the counterfactual is actually in favor of the state of Israel requiring the Palestinians lay down their arms for peace to happen. The other thing that I'd also like to underscore here again when talking to GF, JF, is that, you know, the Palestinians within the last 20 years have launched something like 20,000 rockets into uh, Israel proper. So this is not just your peace loving uh, neighbor that just wants to get along and suddenly, you know, there's reprisals acted against them. However, in, in the last thing I'd like to say real quick here is when anyone uh palestinians or israelis launch military operations and civilians die that's a tragedy and that sh we should always of course be condemning of civilian deaths and seeking uh to mitigate those deaths in any case okay you, it's you, not you, just a tragedy it's a genocide and it's been done intentionally for 80 years by israel it's their tactic they take a justification of violence on the side of the Palestinians. They use it to go overboard, totally disproportionate in their response, and they depopulate doing this. That's currently happening to the north of Gaza, and it's been happening to every piece of territory that they've drained from Palestine since 1948. And justice, you're yeah, as, uh, as someone who, as someone who usually has 
some decent um some some decent uh, objectivity or not objectivity but specificity in your language using the term geno genocide is rather well frankly insane i mean if the, the israelis have been genociding the palestinians the last 70 years they've been doing an absolutely terrible job of it compare this to the populations of jews in surrounding arab nations and i think you'll understand what i'm talking about um I, of uh, course i would not lay that up to you but to the viewer I think that you are that. misguided on the definition of genocide. The UN does not define a genocide as uh, accomplished only when everyone is dead. Uh, there can be a there can be an ethnic cleansing that is incomplete. There can be a resurgence of a population by the survivors. Uh, applying your thinking to the Jews would be quite interesting for the events of World War II. Unfortunately, I can't. I'm in Canada. Uh, but it's not because there are survivors that the genocide didn't happen. So I just want to say, Justice, also you're ignoring, um, you're ignoring, uh, there is discriminatory laws within Israel. So I don't know why you're you're saying this like blatant propaganda that like, oh, there's like one Arab judge in Israel. Therefore, like, you know, it's a great place for Arabs to exist. And then two, again, you're ignoring like Netanyahu and the right wing of Zion, like uh, Israel's current state so they've been trying to do normalization with all the arab states and they even admitted in a bunch of uh israeli news articles that the arab countries have forgot about the plight of palestine and that's what they wanted because then they can just absorb and annex and create greater palestine so i don't know how you can say oh well actually the palestinians are increasing well like yeah they could increase now they get Israel do its goal, which is gets normalization with Arab countries, forces them to stop caring about Palestinians, and then they just kick them all out, which is what their whole goal is. Everyone in that right wing group of the Zionist movement, again, they say from the beginning that if um, even under British mandate, so they said uh, if it's whether or not we have all of Israel or just a partition of Israel, does it matter? because we get a small uh, patch of land and that's the beginning to create greater Israel. And that's from the founding, like founding fathers of Israel. So I don't know how you can just keep ignoring that. Their whole goal is to have an Israeli uh, Jewish majority state. And they've literally stated that they want to normalize with Arab countries so they can just kick out Palestinians. That's what, that's again, what that plan insinuates. Again, Again, the counterfactual that I'm proposing is look at the current state of Israel in accordance to their uh, current borders, the Israel proper, and their relationship to the Arab population within its borders. Is it perfect? No. But that is a good representation of what would happen if Israel if Israel had uh, majority control over the, over the areas that are uh, currently um, being discussed. First speculation. Um, so yeah, you just want Israel to have the majority of it, and we'll all sing "Kumbaya." They'll just have like a token Arab. Definitely, in, in de court. De yeah. definitely not. Definitely not "Kumbaya." We're not uh, talking about "Kumbaya." The only one who's talking about that is uh, the honored opponents here. And so the the question is not whether we'll have utopia, but whether this is a workable solution based on the historical precedent and looking at kind of problem is your historical precedent. It intentionally ignores half of the story. Half of the story is the citizens in Gaza that have to pass checkpoints and that are under total military dictatorship. 
I, I, just a quick correction, uh, Jeff. You were, I think you're referring to the West Bank, which is true that there are uh, West Bank the is checkpoints of West Bank. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But j just to touch, just to touch on some points here. Um, so you met, you mentioned genocide. You said genocide doesn't need to be successful in order to be genocide, but I, I still strongly believe you're using the the definition incorrectly because it's not that israel doesn't have the means to commit a genocide if that was their intention then you wouldn't have the palestinian pop population triple since 1948 what israel has engaged in uh primarily uh in in the 48 war was ethnic cleansing so they they did displace many uh palestinians from villages as hussein mentioned in in his opening uh and and this is for the the sake of demographic control uh, the whole idea is if you live in a democracy and you don't have demographic control, then you can't control your own destiny. This is the this is the whole point of Zionism. So you could see a clear incentive incentive why Israelis or Jewish Israelis would want to maintain uh, demographic control. Uh, control, and you could you could call that racist. You could call it apartheid. But Jews would rather be called racist than be dead, right? So th this doesn't solve the conflict. Just giving it a descriptor of racism. Uh, again, Jews are not going to consent to any solution that will. Uh, seemingly ensure their destruction uh and if there is there is massive to... confusion here about the definition of genocide so i want to quote it from article 2 of the un and what you just admitted to would be a genocide if you are enacting policies to destroy the demographic direction of a nation or intentionally steer it away from your for, uh, toward your desired end by destroying another group that would be a genocide Article 2 of the UN, in the present convention, genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious groups as such a killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group and e-forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Israel is literally committing these five criteria no, for UN it, genocide. It, it, it's, it, it's not. Don, Wait, just real quick. Even in the definition you give, you, you, it says to physically destroy a group. What Israel has done as it has... No word physically. The word physically is not in this definition. I have not uh, read this word. You, uh, it, you could read it again. It, it literally. It, says, it's only in point C that physical is mentioned, and it's deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole okay, or in part. Okay, physical, physical destruction. That that's 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 not what's happening. There's no there. There hasn't been an intention or a goal to cause physical destruction to the Palestinian population. There has been incentive there to move. Been. There's been incentive to move them, and that's defined as ethnic cleansing. So I, I think it's important to uh, clearly uh, define our terms because that will help us have uh, productive conversations. One is genocide; the other is ethnic cleansing. What what uh, no, Canada? These five American... criteria are genocide under the UN definition, and it does include forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. And in terms it, of physical destruction, wait, anyway, wait, I can't wait, believe wait, that we're Israel in a conversation that. on physical destruction when the whole north of Gaza currently is rubbles. Rubbles, and you're telling me it's not yeah. physical destruction it, it, or it's not been done intentionally? That's bullshit. It, 
it, it's damn it, uh, answer me this what how many rockets launched from indian reservations in the united states or canada would be acceptable before the united states or canada had reprisals or how many monkeys uh, can step on a pin how many monkeys can dance on a pin just let justice yeah this is an evasion of the question jf yours is an evasion of of the question who cares about what canada commits toward the u.s i don't care because we haven't even begun the discussion of whether hamas is committing a genocide of the israelis maybe they are I don't care. For now, I'm trying to establish that Israel is in a state of committing a genocide of another population, and you guys have nothing but whataboutism for it. All right, we got to let justice respond. Just hold your hold your question there, Hussein. We got to let justice speak for a couple minutes here, at least uh, get it. Well, not a couple minutes. Absolutely not. We're not talking about whataboutism. We're not talking about whataboutism. We are talking about talking about the situation in an equitable way. If if what's good for the goose is good for the gander, so you have to look at what is really happening in a real politic uh, sort of manner. So if you want to defend the Palestinians' right uh, to exist as a state, sure, absolutely. If you want to say that Israel is wrong in uh, killing civilians, we can say yes. But in either either case, we have to admit that Israel has a right to defend its population from aggression from Hamas. And this That's is something not what that it's it doing. When it's bombing an hospital, yeah. unequivocally in the basement. That's not what it's doing. You're, you're ignoring the beginning. Side. All right, let's give you the five. beginning of the foundation of Israel, where they literally were again taking your house. So if I take your house and then you fight back for the house. And then I'm going to say, oh, I'm doing active defense now and I got to slaughter your whole family. That's not that's what's happening. And you're describing it like you would be the bad guy for fighting back. That's what you're saying. That's insane. Sanity. So, look, when you have an open conflict, otherwise known as a war, you have readjustments of borders. Uh, Under the U.N. partition plan, there was an offer of a two state solution which was rejected by the, uh, the Arab leaders. Why would they reject the it, Justice? Palest- why the would they reject it, Justice? Can you, can you tell me why they would reject it? Uh, Hussein, uh, the, the, uh, the UN partition plan was, uh, you know, we can, we can go in and renegotiate, try to renegotiate that. No, 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 no I'm saying, why did the Arabs reject it? Can you tell me why the Arabs rejected it? Why would they reject this British? And when you have a great war plan. fought, then you have readjustment of borders. That always happens in wars. And is it, is it always good? Is it always great? No, of course not. And there's a lot Imagine of things that happen. Imagine the ethnic cleansing with one source backed by Britain and the U.S. and then the other by Arabs and a- with AKs and barely any army and calling it a war when it was an ethnic cleansing. At least Adar is um, more uh, honest about it and wants solutions. You're just literally ignoring history. Oh, why did the now, Arabs you, not accept were, you giving up one, all their you land? Were, you were the, the 8% one, of the population. The one why would they do that? You were the why, one, wouldn't, why wouldn't you they just the one accept who said the British that we should go great back white to... man savior's plan? Oh, oh. That's you were what you're saying. Wanted to go back to, you're the one who wanted to go back to 1947. And so we talked about yeah, it. Yeah, I'm and asking no, not to ignore history when you say, oh, wow, they're just sending rockets over for no reason It was five Arab nations supporting the Palestinian authority in Palestine then. Um, you were the one who wanted to go back to 1947 and look at that uh, issue. So, so if we want to go back, we want to go back then. And again, Hussein, you are you're on this very strange idea of um, 
eliminating the uh, responsibility or the or the ability of either Jews or Palestinians to stand on their own two feet in this in this thing. It's not the, the Zionist movement or the Jewish uh, is not just some sort of you know unnatural extension of the British Empire. Um, plus, the Arabs weren't all by themselves in the original 1947 1948 war. Now, just they, to answer to, to justice, on the question of. Refusing the offer, we hear that argument so much on the Israeli side. Oh, they have refused the offer. The problem is, uh, an offer is not an offer if, by refusing it, you suddenly uh, become the belligerent and you become the responsible for the offer not having worked. If I was to come and say justice, I let's say you're you're an American or a Russian, I take all of your possessions. I take your house. I take your wife. I take everything from you, and then I offer back half of it. That would be an offer that you'd be you'd be stupid to accept, and yet that is what the Palestinians have gotten. It was half offers of half rights back to them, and not even the right to defend themselves and the right to a military, which is what defines nations. And so these offers and are the just irony, for the, the way, looks; they're just for the propaganda. They are bullshit. And the irony, by the way, is Hamas in the 2017 Real quick, because I don't know, you say it's a bullshit offer, but if that offer was accepted, I mean, the lives of Palestinians would be considerably better today. They'd, they'd have statehood and g given years of peace, uh, Palestinians could certainly work to a position where they can build the military, but it's not like they would need one if we have peace. That's a hypothetical and it requires yeah, very but, good and, treatment and, and you know from Israelis in a nation that they wouldn't control. And it's a hypothetical based on Israeli good faith. And I've learned to reject these hypothetical with experience and learning. I did, I did have a question. Israeli for aggression has always been justified by Palestinian aggression or Palestinian threats of aggression. And that is the only reason why Israelis support aggression. And, you know, I, I actually have a similar a, a similar conversation with Israelis. They talk about the need of a strong military. We can't survive with a strong military. That, that's what we hear. And in, in the current situation, it's true. But there's actually no security better than long term peace. So that's really what we need to be working towards. So the, the fact the idea that Palestinians wouldn't accept statehood because they didn't get everything they wanted is really putting pride in the way of progress. And I think this has really been one of the biggest mistakes that the Palestinian side has made well, since 1948, since they rejected the position. And, and, and on that, yeah, on that. yeah. I just want to say Hamas in 2017, this is what I was going to ask you because it's interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I looked it up because a lot of people have been using propaganda talking points that Hamas has in their charter. They want to wipe out Jewish people, which isn't true because I can cite their articles um, like Article 6 and 31 states that they are uh, believe in peace with all three religions, Abrahamic faiths. Um, but anyways, in the 2017 charter, Hamas uh, presented the Palestinian state being based on 1967 borders with the establishment of a sovereign um, and complete Palestinian state with the capital in Jerusalem. But uh, contingent, they said that they would essentially have like a peace offer, but they wouldn't recognize Israel. So it's like a kind of like a ceasefire, but they won't actually recognize it. But in future generations, maybe Palestinians will soften up and they'll have, you know, more good ties and, you know, we can become more of a amicable relationship. Uh, like you're talking about, would you be willing to make a two-state solution with Hamas then, which would be very controversial? Yeah, so I, I'm I'm in the certainly in the minority opinion that thinks any organization, any group can evolve to be one that you can make peace with, and I think history of conflict shows shows us this to be the case. So Israelis get quite quite furious at me when I think 
there there is potential uh, solution where Hamas is legitimized as a government. It seems harder to believe than ever before a, a, after October 7th, but this is something I've been saying for years. Uh, in terms of their updated charter, it does recognize it doesn't recognize Israel's right to exist. It, it does lay out 67 for the framework for a Palestinian state, but other places in the charter they say that um, you know the, the the struggle continues until the full uh, liberation of Palestine of historic Palestine, right? So so there is language there that that makes it clear that it's not like the establishment of a Palestinian state on 67 borders would uh, would stop the the conflict. Um, it they just seem to evolved it to be slightly more progressive progressive and slightly more moderate, which I, I'd say, you know, if they're at all sincere about it, I think it's a step in the right direction. But it's not hard to understand why uh, Israelis are not are, are still quite um, skeptical of of, uh, of their progress, especially after especially after October 7th. We, we need to understand that, you know, the past two years we've had relative quiet with Hamas. Uh, Israel and Hamas has been on surprisingly good relations. You know, recently Israel uh, enacted a, a new policy to let 15,000 Gazans into Israel every day to work to help uh, bolster the the Palestinian economy. And certainly that that does help Israel as well because it's it's cheap labor, let's be honest. Uh, but that was a, a good faith measure. Um, and after two years of quiet and after this policy to let Gazans into Israel, there was a surprise attack, which ended up being the deadliest day uh, in Jewish history since since the Holocaust. So uh, you know, even if Israelis were starting to believe that there is some possible future with Hamas, uh, now the general consensus is that they need to go. And interestingly, you know, a poll came out uh, a year ago. They, they polled uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel and asked them if they identify with the state of Israel. And 50 percent said they do. Some could see that as positive. Some can see it as not a great sign. After October 7th, that number went up to 70%. So the solidarity in the state of Israel was actually at, at an all-time high, even amongst Palestinian citizens of Israel. So uh, it's it's something interesting to note. If you're like a minority group within a, within a I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, I can see how that's easily, uh, you know, um, you're doing that just on paper, right? So like, if I'm, uh, say Jewish in like uh, Italy, and then there's all of a sudden like a rise in anti-Semitism. I'm gonna be like, yeah, guys, I'm Italian. I'm with you. Like, you know, I wouldn't necessarily uh, put too much stock in that poll, but yeah, I, I think I, you know, I, I think there's a case to be made that perhaps they were scared that there would be some kind of consequence uh, if they didn't like the, you know, you you could say they didn't trust there was a legit poll. It was like the 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 Shabak which is the Israeli equivalent to the FBI testing them, right? Perhaps, um, perhaps. But, you know, I, I, I just got back from uh, three weeks in Israel and I, I spoke to uh, some Palestinian citizens of Israel and, you know, you could also claim they won't be honest to my face, but most of them are not happy about this. Um, first of all, some of, some of those killed and some of the hostages taken were, were Palestinian citizens of Israel. They, they were Muslim. Um uh, one was actually returned today, but also, you know, this created a record level of, of fear amongst, uh, uh, you know, Jews have a record level of fear and Islamophobia currently. So it's not, it, Palestinian citizens of Israel are not happy that these attacks happen because it puts their, their placing in Israeli society at, at a more challenging place. But yeah, we could speculate as to where, where it comes from, certainly. Okay. I, I want to um, 
I, I want to, you know, I don't want to get stuck on a semantic argument, like, but we did talk about genocide briefly. And Jeff, I just want to make one point why I think it's important to be specific with how we define terms. Because the second we're not specific, that's actually what the conversation becomes about. And I, I really don't like when conversations are wasted on on defining terms and semantics, because I think it really gets us away to much more important conversations. And I, and I think by and lar large, despite this being a, a debate, it's it's been respectful. And I think there's been a lot of uh, insight that has come from uh, come from this conversation. So that's why I really urge people to uh, be accurate with the terminology. And that's why, as someone who genuinely cares about making progress, I'm not going to shy away from the term ethnic cleansing, um, but I generally push back on genocide. Uh, but we could also have a conversation on proportionality. You know, Israel's level of proportionality uh, in Gaza has been the highest level it's ever been out of any Gaza conflict. Um, international law is extremely vague in what level of proportionality you can engage in, which is unfortunate because it's very hard to hold a country accountable for breaking international law due to proportionality. Um, but, you know, that, I, I think that's a legitimate conversation and, and criticism that can be made of Israel. Well, I've been very clear on genocide and I've used the Article 2 UN Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. And definitely what Israel commits right now is qualifies under this definition. Uh, and yes, uh, as far as proportionality, uh, we can blur the line however you want. But if it's not disproportionate to be bombing a hospital where the, you know there will be hundreds of civilians affected by this strike, only for, to find a couple of machine guns or Kalachnikovs in the basement, four of them with a mortar cycle, with a rope, and, and start arguing in a video, as Israel did last week, that the rope is a demonstration that so, some act of hostage taking must have been happening, where it was just a small segment of a rope. I think we have reached yeah. uh, the point of ridicule here. I think we have reached a point where if that is not disproportionate, hundreds of civilian lives for four guns that, that weren't even neutralized during the strike. It was neutralized after when the Israeli army entered in for their propaganda video. If that's not disproportionate, nothing ever will be. Two questions, uh, just for clarification on terminology to JF. Uh, did the Germans commit genocide against the Jews in, the, in Europe during World War II? And did the Turks commit genocide against the Armenians? That is beside the point. And I live in Canada where I can get imprisoned to answering your question in certain ways. Therefore, I refuse to answer. Yeah, that was what was expected. So it's, it seems like actual instances of genocide are not defined as genocide by you and not. Uh, I mean, I would I would agree with Jeff that it's a genocide. I mean, if we're saying like, for example, if you want to, um, I'm in a more safe country, I guess. But if, if I want to say like, the, I think the Holocaust happened. OK, um, I question the. Well, that's goal. that's good. Uh, but Brownie points to you for that. I question the death toll, but I question the death toll for a lot of things. Like when they say like victims of communism or uh, victims of like the Native American genocide and certain stuff like that, like a lot of the numbers seems they're they're just estimations, right? So and that's fine, right? Um, it doesn't mean something didn't happen, right? Um, I would still say like a like an incomplete genocide is still a, a genocide. <laughs> genocide. So I would definitely agree with Jeff. So.
Um, if if you guys if you guys really really want to stick on the topic of how we define genocide, I'd be happy to do so. But I, I think it's going to take us away from more important things. But um, you could you could read uh, you read the definition. If if you look at every point you said that actually Israel in fact is not doing that uh, because all all of it comes down to intention as stated in the definition you, you read to destroy population israel has every means to destroy the palestinian population yet it's tripled in size so there's a very weak case to be made uh for, for genocide i think there's a strong case that you made uh, jf that it could there, the israel is using disproportionate force i wouldn't even push back on that um so, so again, I, I'd rather steer the conversation in in directions. Uh, your that point are, here seems to be uh, the genocide could be happening, but it's not uh, in whole because oh, there no, are no, survivors no. and they have they have successfully bred into a larger population. That is okay. nowhere in the UN uh, definition because it says in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. It makes no doubt that a part of the Palestinian group has been subject to a killing members of the group. They have been killed. We have seen their bodies on cameras for the last two weeks. So there's no doubt that it's a partial genocide that is ongoing okay. right now in okay. Gaza. Wait, 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 real quick. So the, the police in the, uh, America, they're genocide, they're genociding black people because they kill black people. Is, is, that, is that really how broadly we want to define genocide? Whenever one group kills another group, it's genocide? That's, that's not how the definition is intended to be used. I'm sorry. Uh, there could be a situation in which civil police participate to a genocide. Definitely, would you deny this? No, but 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 to say that because police kill um, members of a group, that's not that's not what defines genocide. I mean, clearly, that's not how the definition is meant to be used. Well, if it was done with an intent to destroy the group, and there can be no doubt that. The people who are directing these strikes Wait, so, that, so, turn, so me, that are turning me... Gaza in rubbles, there can be okay. no doubt that they intend to do that. They can. There can be no doubt that they understand that bombs will result in these cities being reduced to rubbles. So I have a question for you. How, do you know you know how many bombs have been dropped on Gaza since October seventh? No. Around fifteen thousand. And you know how many people have been killed, according to the the Gaza Ministry of Health? Around 14,000. Israel is mm -hmm. currently averaging less than one death per bomb. How is that even possible in one of the most densely populated uh, cities in the world if there's not, if the intention is to maximize civilian harm? H how is it that Israel has not successfully um, committed genocide and reduced the population when they have the military means to do so? What has actually stopped them? Because the intention is not merely to maximize civilian damage. The intention is also to win a press war, a war for the mind, and to convince the rest of the world, as we see in those videos that are totally produced for the English population, because you can see Israelis speaking in English in them. They want to win the hearts of the American empire, of the British, and so they, they're not just interested at killing as much Palestinian as they can. They're interested in doing it in a way that that reduces their cost to do it and in a way that still looks like it could be argued to be self-defense. Yeah, the, the argument would be made is that Israel can't just go, we're in uh, the information age, right? You can't just go out and do a Holocaust, right? Like uh, there's no way that would be possible. So you have to do it discreetly. And it goes back to 
my initial point where uh, the original founder of Zionism literally admitted that they have to discreetly um, get rid of the population. So when they're making their colonial projects. So and then that's why I said, like, maybe me and you, Adar, can agree that, um, you know, what's happening is bad and you want a two state solution. But you're way more fair minded than the people in power and the large percentage of the Israeli population. So, I mean, the how do I explain it? Unofficial position of Israel has essentially been that there is no two states. There's only one state of Israel and they want greater Israel. So their whole thing is to ethnically cleanse. Like you can mince words about is it genocide? Is it ethnic cleanse? It doesn't matter. Like the larger point is, is that they are trying to discreetly move the population to where they can always have at least a way to spin it that it was self-defense. Right. 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 So, uh, you know, I think you you make a good point that in today's age, it's it's much harder to genocide a population because everything is recorded. And I think, you know, the case could be made that that is why Israel won't commit a genocide, not that they are doing it, but behind closed doors, because as we know, they can't they can't do it behind closed doors. And and I, I think if we were to just use the term ethnic cleansing, we we wouldn't even have um, a disagreement here. And that's why I'm I'm urging us to be accurate in our terminology so we could get onto actual actual you know issues of moving forward. Um, so the, for the sake of the argument, right? I'll, I'll use I will use yeah. ethnic cleansing. But when they force uh, the Gazan South right now, okay, <laughs> are they not ethnically cleansing? And then they're telling so, them. Yeah, if if Israel lets Gazans return to North Gaza, then that would not be ethnic cleansing. If they right do now not, they're shooting them during this uh, ceasefire. Uh, no, no, uh, Gazans right now, Gazans have attempted to come back into the north, and they're being shot at by the IDF. So this goes back right. to JF to JF saying, and like I saying that I don't believe Israel will ever uh, and ever wants a two state because all their actions point that they're just trying to move them south. And then in 10, 20 years, they can restart this whole charade and then do it again. And then eventually there is no Gaza. And then they just so, move back, move to the West Bank. And they're just going to do it. And in 100 years, they will be greater Israel. And they'll just have slowly done it. Uh, so I'd like to give you a, a little bit of hope on this is, issue. I do agree that if they're not allowed to move back, then that is that is by definition ethnic cleansing. I'm not convinced that's what's going to happen. I think... It, we know that there's a lot of tragedy that has come out of this recent um, conflict. Uh, but one of the positive things that we could almost be sure of, it's that Benjamin Netanyahu is done, right? 75% of Israelis think he's unfit to serve. Uh, so we will have new leadership. And it's not like we're going to have some revolutionary, progressive um, peacemaker, but we are going to have somebody who's more moderate than than Benjamin Netanyahu. And when we, when we look at recent polling, uh, one poll showed 20%, the other poll showed 30% of Israelis uh, supporting building settlements within Gaza. So there's no political will currently to, to build settlements within Gaza. Uh, Israelis don't want it. Um, and in fact, if we look back historically, you know, Israel has always had this expansionist segment of, of, uh, of society. And the only way they've continuously made the case for expansionism is not on ideological grounds. It's not on uh, religious grounds. It's always been on on grounds of security. And it's why I, I my entire opening statement was to talk about um, 
security being essential for Jews, because what that does is it weakens the expansionist segment of Israeli society. So the Israeli population is currently more radical than they've ever been, and that's because violence radicalizes people. And Palestinians are more radicalized than they've ever been, because they've been subject to violence for, for, for a century now, right? So Whatever we do moving forward, it's. I think it's essential for us to uh, renounce violence and and recognize the right to self determination of of both people. And I think also we need to call on both populations to to acknowledge that they are part of the problem and can do so much more to bring us closer to peace. Right? There's this whole notion. Israel's doing everything right and Palestine's bad or Palestine's doing everything right and Israel's bad. But clearly, clearly both sides are are far from where they need to be to be partners in peace. And I think if we actually care about solving the conflict. It's essential to urge both sides uh, to come forward and, and do what's necessary to solve this thing. Look, um, to your guys' initial point, for example, like Justice talked about like the moral claim and whatever. I mean, I don't, I think all that is wrong. I mean, the only reason that I think Israel can exist is that it's a pragmatic reality at this point. Um, and, you know, I'll agree with you on that. But even when Israel, uh, Palestinians peacefully attempt anything, like they're met with violence. So when there was the March of Return, uh, Palestinians were sniped. I mean, these were... Uh, peaceful protests marching to, to to Palestine and Israel and then they were just sniped and then you have Israeli soldiers just killing people and then bragging about it uh when interviewed on like Hariyats uh I don't know how if I'm pronouncing pronouncing that right but I mean I, I I get what you're saying and like you're way more reasonable than like I said the people in power but and you know hopefully that is um a bright spot for the future but i mean as of right now i mean all hamas and palestinians have known is violence and even they peacefully do something and they get sniped at they uh throw rocks they get killed and children get arrested like there's no winning right now yeah. so i think you're way more honest than justice in this argument but you know i don't <laughs> at least you're recognizing the initial thing is a form of colonization and ethnic cleansing so all right, so I, let's I, test out this this uh, this question of justice's fairness. Hussein, would you say that the attacks on Israel on October seventh were a form of ethnic cleansing? No, it's a it's a it's a form of um, you could argue it's a form of terrorism, like the way that the Iron Gun used terrorism as an effective political tool. I mean, you could say terrorism isn't morally justified, like it's not morally okay. Don't get me wrong and clip that out, guys. But I am going to say that it's, it can be effective. I mean, when Israel is normalizing with the entire Arab world and telling Arab countries to just forget about the Palestinians and Netanyahu saying, oh, we're just going to like slowly annex them. I mean, yeah, they have to do something. I mean, again, I don't agree with it. They could have tried to peacefully protest but first, but this is Hamas we're talking about. But, you know, you're again, Justice, you're ignoring like the whole start of the conflict, which is I stole your house and then offered you 20% of the stuff back. Or like Jeff said, 50%. And you're like, yeah, just accept it. Now they should accept it pragmatically. That's why PLO has asked for 67 borders. That's why Hamas has asked for 67 borders. But Netanyahu is not for that. So like, what do you want? Like Adar, you know, agrees. Um probably with 67 borders, but, you know, hopefully that's a future. I'd like that, but 
for now, it just seems like we're going to have a cycle of violence where, like me and Jeff are saying, we can't believe anything Israel says because they haven't shown to be good faith actors at all. And Adar is at least admitting to the pragmatic realities of it and like the government currently in power while Justice is living in la-la land. Justice is uh, absolutely in agreement with Adar on potential solutions. Um, Justice is not in la-la land. When you talk about the 47 UN uh, partition plan that was rejected by the Arabs and a uh, five-nation coalition tried to eradicate the uh, Jewish movement for an independent uh, homeland. Um, so that's not that's not uh, La La Land. That's history. You're using the correct terminology. They didn't say genocide Jewish people. They said not have a Jewish state. So there, there's yeah, no. And when what's wrong? And with how that? well do and how well do Jews fare in? Uh, majority Muslim nations that are surrounding. They were fine up until the creation of Israel. And that's why they all fled. There's plenty of Misrati Jews, which I don't even agree with the term because they're kind of uh, taking away their racial identity. But um, they lived there fine under Turkish and uh, Muslim empires. Now there were flare ups. I'm not going to say like every actor was good. Right. And that specific Muslim groups didn't treat people badly. Like that's uh, entirely possible so well if 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 I, if I may speak to that you know if we compare jews living in the middle east to jews living in europe it, it was better to be a jew in the middle east than in europe historically um not not sure anymore right clearly but jews were never we, we were we were living as second class citizens in the middle east and there were instances of, of violence towards us um and just the fact that you need to think at after after the establishment of the state of Israel, uh, Jews were displaced from the countries they were living in, which shows how unstable their security in those lands were. If the creation of, of a Jewish state could cause the populations to turn on them, they clearly weren't as safe as as one would hope. Um, and again, I, I don't I don't like to think that the past is deterministic of what the future needs to be. Um, you know, I tell people who are very unhopeful about. Uh, the future of of Israelis and Palestinians living together, or pal- Palestinians ever accepting uh, Israelis on the land, uh, it's that look how much Europe has evolved. It used to be pretty horrible to live be Jewish uh, in Europe, and and the conditions have improved significantly, at least uh, after World War II. They're now deteriorating again. Um, I- I'm interested though, uh, Hussein. You said the term Mizrahi Jews, which uh, means Jews from the East. You don't agree with that term. Can I can I know why? Uh, it's because uh, supposedly uh, they're um, how do I explain it? One, it's historically was never used. It's a sociological term that is literally just the Hebrew word for Easterner, and it was invented upon the state of Israel. So they're just trying to harmonize uh, mm-hmm. Israeli citizens. Um, so that's kind of why, because essentially they are either Arab Jews or Tunisian yeah. Jews or Moroccan Jews. They belonged to those states. And then you're essentially saying, well, actually, you don't belong to Morocco and you're not Moroccan. It's a way to um, it's a way to further the Zionist project and get them to no longer associate with Morocco or Tunisia and then actually get them to flee and go go to Israel, which is the stated goal of Zionism. So that that's why I I I have a problem yeah. with it because like I'm an Arab American, right? Uh, I don't 
consider myself not American, just like Jeff said, um, he's a French Canadian, he doesn't have citizenship to France, right? So if I was to go ahead and like start uh, inventing like a term, right, um, you know, to get me to leave or, or, or go abroad or something like it becomes problematic. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so interestingly, you know, I'll, I'll give a little more insight as to uh, how Mizrahi Jews actually uh, view themselves, because in a sense, it is a term that encompasses Jews from all different countries in the Middle East. But they actually have they, they still take pride in um, the country they came from a few generations ago. So Moroccan Jews, um, you know, they have Moroccan food. They take pride in Moroccan food. In fact, the Mizrahi Jews are in agreement in making fun of uh, how much better their food is than Ashkenazi food. And most Ashkenazis would agree. Um, a lot of our food was uh, influenced by Eastern Europe, while there was uh, theirs was influenced by North Africa and the Middle East. Okay. So. But but so they still do take pride in the countries they they came from. Well, I, I I also I understand that. But that. how how is it how how can you say so? For example, here's something that's really annoying, right? So you'll have Moroccan Jewish people, right? And there's Tunisian Jewish people. When I visited Tunisia, they're great, right? No problems mm -hmm. with them. They live there fine. Right. Okay, they make Tunisian food, right? So imagine them going to Israel, right? And then all of a sudden, some Ashkenazi Jewish person will come to New York and then make a restaurant and call it Israeli food when it's Moroccan. And that's like super common now in the States that they'll literally, the, the meme would be Israeli food, right? Like they're stealing mm. the food. So it's not a part of Ashkenazi culture or Jew Jewish specific culture yeah. at all. So and they're trying to call, they're literally trying to colonize the food, man. Like... <laughs> How can let, you let, make peace when they're literally propagandized and stealing the food? Like they can't even admit that the food is Arab or food is right. Moroccan or North African. They can't even admit it. That's the level it, of like. It, it's it's interesting. You know, I, food is is interestingly a sensitive subject, but I'd like to offer a different perspective here. Uh, for, first of all, when Ashkenazis open up Israeli restaurants, uh, Moroccan Israelis are not at, at, in any way offended by it. But essentially what happened was, you know, when when the state of Israel was created, it gave an opportunity from Jews from all over the world to uh, return to the land, whether because they had to flee the land they were in or they just hoped of a better life in the, in the state of Israel. So you had this meshing of cultures, right? Because when Jews were were in the diaspora, when they were in countries all over the world, they adopted a lot of the culture of of that nation. So Israel became this very interesting melting pot of uh, different uh, ethnicities and different cultures. Um, and that melting pot, whatever that is, has been termed by Israelis as Israeli. So you have Israeli food, they call it Israeli food, and a lot of it comes from the Middle East. But this was brought there by Jews who now consider them, themselves Israeli. So it's Jews being a Look, part I of the Middle East. I understand where it comes from. If it was a combination of like Ashkenazi food and Misrati food, sure, that's fine. But you're literally taking Moroccan food and calling it like you're literally yeah, calling it Israeli food, which is they, so they, insulting they, they, after the land has already been stolen. And I'm pragmatically having to agree with you that we should have a two state. And then you can't even admit that. Like right now, you're like you're defending the stealing of food, dude. Like just admit that I'm, it's I'm Moroccan food. It's Moroccan I'm, I'm food. I'm 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 trying I'm trying to explain to you where it comes from, uh, and and the reason why you'll see it is because uh, people living in Israel, Israelis, this is the food they know to be Israeli. It was brought to them by Israelis who 
uh, generations ago came from another country. I'm not going to say it shouldn't be offensive to Arab countries or Palestinians. Um, I can understand it's seen as a form of food colonization, but it, it also ignores the reality that Jews have been a part of the Middle East for thousands of years. So this food is just as much Jewish as it is Arab because Jews have been living there. And actually the first reference of hummus uh, seems to come from the, the Torah. They talk about this chickpea spread or this lent, uh, this bean spread, which was served, right? So um, if anything, and again, I'm not going to say don't be offended by it because I understand given the nature of the conflict, it's seen like just another form of, of colonization. But I think our, our love for the same food and our love for the same land and the fact that we can um, both consider ourselves to be indigenous, to, depending on how we want to define indigenous, we should use this not as a reason to fight, but as unifying factors between us. Because I think if we have any hopes to solve this conflict, we need to recognize that neither Israelis or Palestinians are going anywhere. We're both part of this land. Um, we both have a right to live here. And if we can find more things to unify on, I think we're, we're better off because of it. So I, I understand why it's offensive, but I think we, we should turn it into something to, to bond over. And perhaps for a next debate, we could open up on this question of is something being in the Torah make it a thing that belongs to the Jewish people today? Because there are people like Osama bin Laden who argue that they are the true inheritors of the Torah and that the Jews who today identify as Jews, when you look at someone like uh, Lex Friedman, he looks very Eastern European to me, doesn't look like someone who had much ancestry in the Middle East. And so there may be a case to make that the chickpeas of the Torah actually were properly inherited by what we call today Muslims, which comes from populations which formerly would have been called Jews. Yeah, so Ashkenazi yeah. Jews, uh, if, if you break down Ashkenazi Jewish DNA, it's around 50% uh, Middle Eastern, it's it's Levantine. Uh, and interestingly, Palestinians and, and Jews share DNA, uh, which we were talking about unifying factors. Let that be another one. Let us give every single person living on the land a DNA test and publish it. I think that would probably uh, uh, carry a lot of weight. But for the record, if it hasn't been made clear, I don't think the, the, the Torah gives any legitimacy uh, for for statehood. I mean, I'm, I'm Jewish, but I'm an agnostic. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish by ethnicity. It's it's the people I'm, I'm from, but it's certainly not a religion I believe in. You know about how uh, supposedly all the Ashkenazi Jew, uh, Jews can uh, trace their DNA from four uh, Jewish converts that were supposedly not Middle Eastern for, for like a I, DNA test? Yeah, but that, that's been uh, widely debunked. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. You're referring to the Khazar theory, correct? Uh it was uh, it's yes. just, uh yeah, yeah. article what, what, it says studies yeah. traces Ashkenazi roots to European women who converted to Judaism, and they're like from Rome. Yeah, it, it, it's it sounds like the Khazar. I mean, j just based on logic, we we know that that can, like all that means is there are only four Jews left, or every Jew is just the descendant of, of four people. So what happened to all the other Jews? Did they just uh, stop it stop intermittently i mean there are bottlenecks in evolution it can definitely happen at some point you have to have a bottleneck and at some point you come from four organisms right. that, 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 that's fine homo sapiens themselves had a very small bottleneck so so uh that's true but to think the bottleneck would be as um small as four and that would that would make the entire ashkenazi population but it's not even something worth debating because we have dna tests and uh it's it's pretty pretty extensive 
uh, Ashkenazi DNA. And within Ashkenazi DNA, it's not all the same, right? There's different like haplogroups within the DNA, but it's between 40 to 60% Levantine. So, um, it, you know, that that's what the test yeah. show. And, and even, even though like, look, I don't have a typical um, Middle Eastern look. I'm 99.8 um, Ashkenazi, but I also don't look super European, right? I don't, I don't wear sunscreen. I don't get burnt. Clearly my skin is a slightly different composition than the, than the average. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're a little, we're a little bit of a, of a mix. Quick question. If you were like 98% Italian, but like 2% Ashkenazi Jew, why would you consider yourself a, a Jewish person instead of just Italian? Well, and just I, stay I stopped, well, I'm 99.8% Ashkenazi. No, no, no. I understand that. I'm saying like a thought experiment. Say you oh, were like, uh, say yeah. you're like a typical Polish or German Jewish person who's a largely atheist and, uh, you know, is a 90% uh, Russian or something. Why would you consider yourself that you need to leave Russia? Like now, now, per so, se, or like Germany, where it's safe yeah. now. I, I think what, what you're referring to is Israel's uh, law of return, which is not based off of Jewish law, right? So Jewish law says your mother needs to be Jewish for you to be Jewish or you need to go through uh, an official conversion. The state of Israel said that you just need to be Jewish according to Hitler, right? Because the whole idea of the state of Israel is, is protection. So Hitler didn't care about what the Jewish law said. He saw something wrong with the ethnicity. He thought our, our ethnicity, something about our blood was tainted and we need to be exterminated, right? He thought there was something inherently wrong with our, our DNA. So he didn't care if it was just your mother being Jewish. Even if we were like one fourth Jewish, um, that was enough for us to be considered Jews in, in the eyes of the Nazis. So you, you could have situations where there's Russians and, and you brought up Russia because this is an example where the law certainly has been exploited. Um, there has been a fair bit of, of Russians who uh, don't have don't consider themselves Jewish. They they might have some Jewish DNA, uh, but they the life in Israel is better than in Russia. They look for for working opportunities. So they exploited the law of return in order to to move uh, to Israel. So that's that certainly happened. And there's even been pushback. You know, there's been some talk of it in, in Israeli politics about uh, not allowing this to happen anymore. But but I, I will go on to say, I think generally speaking, uh, it's the, the reason why it's been accepted is because, uh, you know, a lot of the Russians coming over, they were like heavily educated, highly educated um, and considered like similar culture to Ashkenazi Jews. So it, it wasn't seen as a threat to, to let them come join the, the workforce. So in your eyes, it's okay to have like an ethno-nationalist state? Uh, well, clearly, you know, I, I would prefer there to not be ethno-national states, but I think that in the case of Israel and Palestine, both both people prefer an ethno-national state. And I think um, I, I think for for obvious reasons, a binational state at this point would be bloody. So yeah, I'd rather an ethno-national state than than um, than bloodshed, unlike we've ever seen on the land. Um, if, if both people have a different idea of what it means to self-determine, they have a different idea of what their state should look like, religion, culture, and law, why have them compete over control over one government? You know, it just, it, it doesn't make any sense. So, um, it, you know, ethno-nationalism is preferred to that for sure. Hussein, I think you should ask your... I think you should ask your um, debate partner whether or not he's in favor of ethno-national states. 
Uh, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure uh, I'd be kicked out, but <laughs> but it's fine. I mean, like uh, the like, except uh, for the Jews, like huh? So we would be in favor, except for in this case. Well, if you're, uh, it sounds like Adar is in a way like saying like a uh, right to self determination and like. If you want to live in a religious society, you should have uh, that right. And then if you want to live in like a ethno-nationalist society, you should have that right. So it doesn't sound like he's necessarily disagreeing with maybe Jeff's uh, ideas of uh, self-determination of uh, groups. Yeah, well, uh, all I ever advocated for is what Adar just advocated for, saying, hey, why create conflict where there does not need to be conflicts? Different people have different taste for how to self to, to be sovereign to self-manage and to the extent that people can be different enough that they shouldn't fight for the same government let us uh, create let us create different countries for people to live with the likes of themselves with whom they can agree that's what adar said of israel i would simply expand it and not hold the double standard that he holds which is that let's do it for Israel and Palestine, but let's not do it for Ireland. I say, let's do it for Ireland too. I, I, I actually, you're accusing me of a double standard, but I'm, I'm, I didn't make the case that no other place in the world shouldn't have the option for an ethno state. I think there's a lot of ethno states in the world and I'm not advocating for, for them to end. I, I think there's some instances of nations that have beautiful, beautiful multiculturalism. I think probably the United States is, is the best example. I think, uh, in Europe, we're seeing a, a bad result of, of multiculturalism, and it seems like there's growing tension between different ethnic populations. So, um, you know, my my perspective has always been to try to be grounded in pragmatism, try to be grounded in reality and in fairness. Um, so I'm not, you know, all good. You want an ethno-national state, uh, take it. Just let's try to find a solution that, that that you know, is fair for for all people. Yes. So all four of us, so all four of us would be in agreement. Look at us. That so all force would be in agreement that mm-hmm. pragmatically uh, allowing for an Israeli na- na- ethno state would be a solution to the to the current problem. So that's great that we've come to that pragmatic solution. Um, there we go. Win for modern day debate. Hey, that's yeah, always fun. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> I'm not so sure if I agree with it because it, <laughs> it's hinged on a Jewish supremacy. So. And, uh, and I'm saying, sure that we wouldn't agree on the drawing of the borders. Yeah. And Hussein, so. you're you're an Arab American, so an ethno state in America would not be good for you. So I, we, I, you know, I can understand why. That means. I mean, I'll get kicked out, but you know, if America look, if America actually promised to not meddle in the Middle East, and they're telling me to leave, like if I can sell my stuff and like leave, I mean, and I'm forced to, I mean that would just be a pragmatic reality right so or we could uh, leave minnesota to you yeah or i can be a token arab you know like i can have a you know they could put me in court as a judge and i could be like see like you know we have one arab guy and <laughs> all right so uh it's up to you fellows if you had anything else you wanted to unpack uh this has been a really good discussion i've been able to just uh hang out in the live chat and just uh, kind of do the host work rather than moderate because you you fellows have been so uh, amicable and just giving each other time and space to make your points uh, i appreciate that but uh if you had anything else you wanted to unpack before we get into the q a uh maybe now make your chance to say hey you said this i want to unpack that so uh, have at our fellows I'm happy to make one one more one more statement, you know. Um, so, 
you know, as I said, I think that the fastest way for a better life for Palestinians is for them to come to terms with Israel's existence. And I do understand that it's very hard for them to accept Israel in its current state. So I also think we should work towards transforming Israel. And what I want to urge activists from all over the world, um, if you if you want to improve the lives of Palestinians, if you want to see justice and self-determination for Palestinians, work to transform Israel rather than dismantle Israel. Now, here's a bit of good news. Israelis are very big on criticizing their own government. Prior to October 7th, we had eight months of weekly protests, record levels of protests. Um, but Israelis will not rally to their own destruction. So they're not going to support this movement to dismantle Israel because they view it as a call, a call for their, their actual death. Um, so what I'm calling on activists around the world, Palestinians and Israelis, to build a, a broad coalition to work to transform Israel, uh, which comes with accepting Israel's existence a, as a fact. Um, and, and I truly believe that we can find a, a, a path forward that ensures security, justice, and peace for all people. All right. I My think... problem with seeing a path forward like this is that uh, I see, e even if I make a scenario theoretically in my mind where forget about the West Bank, forget about Gaza, in fact, forget about the whole, uh, the whole Muslim population of Israel. Even in that scenario, I don't see a Israel fundamentally feeling safe. And I don't see them as being safe effectively because they are still surrounded by countries that are Arab. They are still very aggressive in the region. We see them striking Lebanon, Syria. We see them meddling in the whole affairs of the Middle East and things that they where they don't belong. And so I'm afraid that even a local path for peace between uh, the Palestinians and Israel uh, wouldn't solve the fundamental problem, which is that this area was a terrible area to pick, to go live to, and it needed way too much suffering to ensure a land for the Jewish people. Well, everybody seems yeah, to be doing a one-minute closing, so uh, it's up to you guys if you want to bounce this back or if you want to like do a closing. Well, I, I, yeah, I want to. I want to make one point. You know, on on what JF said, I actually think that there's a Let's reason keep a to be hopeful. Then. Yeah, I think there's a reason to be hopeful in terms of the trajectory of the Middle East. I mean, Israel has had like a soft peace with Jordan for for decades now, and a soft peace with Egypt for decades now. We recently signed a, a peace agreement with um, the United Arab Emirates, with Bahrain, and with Morocco. Things are warming up with Saudi Arabia. And even now, with, with the bloodshed we're seeing in Gaza, it seems like the, the deal with Saudi Arabia is still on the table. So I, I, I think the trajectory, generally speaking, is going in the positive direction. If we zoom out, if we zoom into Israelis and Palestinians, yeah, we have um, uh, both populations are the most radical they've ever been. So there's going to be a lot of work to be done. But in terms of the greater context of the Middle East, there's reason to be hopeful that we can uh, that we can you know have a peaceful future. Uh, on that, I mean, I don't, like I said, uh, I think you're being way too optimistic. I think Netanyahu's, um, whole plan and, uh, anyone who he's gets gone, he's gone, you know, yeah, he's gone. But I mean, the, the whole thing is you use the soft power in the Middle East, you get everyone to agree, and then you can just take the land and make greater Israel. I mean, like it's just playing the long con politically. So I, you know, I don't, they can so even, again, I'd like to jump on Hussein here for you know his injustice so I'm going to bring some justice to this um of playing the genetic fallacy with Zionism but refusing the genetic fallacy with Hamas so this is this is an important you know it's not it's it's good for the goose but it's not good for the gander if Hamas can change 
then can't the current uh the, the, the can't the quote unquote Zionist faction also change as history goes as history goes marching forward. So it's a genetic fallacy. And if again Hamas can change their charter, for instance, and we can and we're supposed to believe that those changes are for real, then why can't the quote unquote Zionist faction also change um from their original uh stated intents? Yeah, um I mean I'm not saying it can't. So I'm saying I don't believe it right now. Well, but again, the counterfactual of that I'm proposing and which I've proposed several times in this is look at the 21% Arab population inside of larger Israel. That is the proof of the change. So right now they have 21%. Say that continues to grow and then it becomes 30, 40, 50%. Uh, you're just going to see a spike in quote unquote people who are afraid of demographic changes which is the case in any nation, just like America, just like Europe, when Europeans want to cook out, uh, kick out essentially Muslims because they're saying they're being invaded. You have elections of like more and more right wing people. So we could have, for example, like in five years, 10 years, like a peace and relatively um, easy. How do I explain it? Uh, relatively uh, peaceful times. Right. Demographics will slowly shift. And then as soon as it gets to more Arab people, they'll just reignite their prior Zionism because it's in the Constitution. Okay. It's in the Declaration of Independence that they want a Jewish majority state. So like I said, if they don't change those things, then why would I ever believe and this them? Is why, and this is why we come back to the pragmatic solution that all four of us agreed on, that the best idea is to have two ethnic sta ethnostates one for the Palestinians and one for the Israelis. But this is contingent upon the Palestinians agreeing to uh, having a state without the, you know, the intent of retaking all of the entire land of Israel. That is not going anywhere. The thing is, we can't even get this guarantee on the Israeli side based on their behavior. They've historically been progressing. So I wouldn't take that guarantee on the Israeli side. Yeah. I would say that the last 60 years has shown that the Israelis are, will retaliate. Yes, of course, um, but not initiate. And again, I would even like kicking this over into another sphere, not necessarily connected to this one, but again, just as a counterfactual or one that we should look at is like how to resolve the uh, Russian-Ukrainian war. You have to admit certain realpolitik situations. Um, Crimea is not going anywhere, so forth and so on. So if we can't base our solutions on some Western liberal utopia, uh, utopian solution of what what would be the ideal ideal. We have to go with what is uh, realpolitik on the ground and what the counterfactuals show would actually be uh, workable. I mean, I don't. Uh, we could talk about liberalism, but I don't under. Um... How do I explain it? People who espouse liberalism don't believe in liberalism. So real politic is essentially just having power and then power makes right. And so other countries will do whatever they want. So the only way that Palestinians can ever ensure their uh, statehood would be to have a military and a deterrent factor. So uh, we're essentially the only way the Palestinians, the only way the Palestinians can ensure their statehood is by not attacking a uh, population that is obviously technologically and militarily superior to them. That would be the first step. But it's just, you know, we can just say it's active defense, you know? We have our Orwellian terms, you know? They're just doing You could say that, defense, but then right? you would be wrong. Like the IR gun. 
Yeah, I, I think, it, it, you know, we like to have, uh, you know, these discussions on what does uh, the right to resist entail or what does the right to self-defense entail? And I think a much better conversation is what is the result of this resistance or what is the result of this self-defense? And, you know, I, I, historically, I've been very critical of Israel's policy in Gaza because they they claim right to self-defense, but I actually don't feel like it's made Israeli safer. So I don't think there's... It, it, even if you want to make the case that they have a right to retaliate in that way, what is the result of that retaliation? And I have the same exact critique for Palestinian right to resist them. I'm, I'm less interested in what rights they have in their resistance. It's what resistance is going to lead them to, to better lives and achieving their goals of self-determination. So that's that's generally, generally how I like to look at it. So do you guys not agree that Israel, if Israel has the power, Israel has the might, they're the ones who need to initiate a good faith action. Um, which would be to offer up a realistic two-state solution. So until that, then all the Palestinians can do is what they're doing. Uh, I'd agree with the first part of the statement that Israel, you know, having um, the, the, the power uh, needs to do a lot more. But I think that Israel cannot force Palestinians to accept them. Um, so if we really want to solve this, Palestinians are also going to do the work and start renouncing violence um, and and make it clear that Jews have a future on this land, because right now the loudest voices in Palestinian society uh, talk about uh, cleansing the land of Jews. And you actually don't hear people speaking up against them. And whether these people exist, but they're just scared to speak up or they're just such a small minority, we don't hear from them is unclear. But it, it doesn't give Israelis confidence in, in any solution when the only voices they hear are, are th that of violence and, and ethnic cleansing. Um, so no, I, I think the work needs to be done on on both sides. Israelis need a uh, Palestinians need to accept Israel's right to exist, and Israel needs to uh, transform itself to be one that's easier for Palestinians to accept. I mean, it, it to sounds answer like... Hussein's to answer Hussein's question, I would totally agree that Israel having the upper hand um, militarily, economically, should be the ones to make the initiations of goodwill and peace like for instance the two years of work permits like for instance for instance seating gaza uh, in 2005 these things are efforts that the israeli government has made towards uh peace on their borders with uh with the uh palestinians and the and the, Pal and the hamas controlled territory um so i would really you know th that they do and they should and they do uh but is it enough has it been enough i don't think so i think one of the things that we could all agree on though and, you know, correct me, Hussein, if I'm wrong on this, that one of the steps that that the West could take towards um, helping Israel go more in the right way of peace and not be so heavy handed would be to not have such a carte blanche support of Israel militarily um, just on everything. Israel wants to do it. Oh, it's great. Wonderful. Um, this is a big problem with the West seeing um, United States in particular, seeing Israel as uh their you know partner and just willing to to fork over all, what seems to be almost unlimited amounts of military aid and support and this is also if you have a blank check you end up writing it right so uh this is one of the ways that we yeah. uh from the west can can help move towards peace is by saying no 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 you actually have to find peace with your with your people on your borders and you don't have a blank check just to do whatever you want yeah essentially like a more libertarian or um even Unironically, I have to say this like a isolationist slash American first policy that was actually like uh, effective. Like if they reduce the amount of uh, budget to like give to governments, 
um, that you're not essentially blank checking whatever they want to do uh, and endorsing it. You are forcing them to come up with pragmatic solutions where they have to play nice. Um, but America's current um, leadership doesn't seem to uh, agree with either of us on that. So, but I would agree. Yeah. And but again, saying- in these conversations, we so often talk about the theoretical of what, oh, what should be done, what should be done. And in the end of the day, I would like the viewers who are, you know, 99% American, most likely here on the modern day debates to think about, you know, encouraging your uh, representatives in government to reduce military support to Israel as a means for peace. That is actually something that we can all agree on. Everybody in agreement? Well, I don't know. Do you agree on that? Well, I wanted to say something on on your point, Hussein, you know, about military aid to Israel, because I I would also agree that I think um, if Israel didn't get such a large amount of uh, foreign aid, that they would be more reliant on needing to find creative solutions. Um, And I think if Israel does get that amount of aid, it should be contingent on them um, being actively engaging in the peace process. I don't think it should be an unconditional uh, check. Um, but interestingly, you know, I, I want to bring insight as to where the force behind that money comes from, because a lot of people talk about like the pro-Israel lobby and the pro-Israel lobby certainly has power. Uh, there's don't, no denying that. But there's there's one lobby that's even more powerful, and that's the that's the military industrial complex. Right. So if, if you if you look at the the money that Israel gets, the four billion dollars, 70 percent of that needs to be spent on weapons, U.S. weapons companies. So that that check is essentially just a subsidy for for uh, the, the U.S. defense industry. Um, so I'm putting this out there because if, if, if we want to change the dynamic, it's not just, um, it doesn't only come down to uh, accusing the, the pro-Israel lobby. It's also the, the military industrial complex that's ensuring that that check remains uh, large and, 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 you know, consistent. Well, yeah, that's true. War is profitable and America would have to actually like go back to producing stuff to you know, and not be fake. So <laughs> <laughs> if, uh, if they had reduced the budget. Yeah. So I agree. All right. Uh, did you guys have any other comments or concerns before we move into the uh, Q and a, I know that this is uh very, uh, we, we were waiting to do this for a while on modern day debates. So there's a lot of things that have happened and a lot of thoughts. There's a lot of history. So, uh, any other thoughts, gentlemen, before we jump into our Q&A? Excellent. All right. I, I gave you your chance. That was all you got. That was it. We're going to go into the Q&A, everybody. So if you're hanging out in the live chat right now, hit the like button, uh, You know, share this out, hit the subscribe. Uh, yes, I see you there, Issa. I'm glad that you're hanging out in the live chat, along with everybody else that's hanging out in the live chat and keeping things lively. Uh, we're going to move into our super chats. So if you have a question for any of our speakers or a question that you think we haven't addressed... Get it into a super chat, and we will for sure ask that on stream. So, Stupid Horror Energy asks for $10. With the UN, Red Cross, ICG, etc., affirming the 4th Geneva Convention's applicity, applicity, applicability sorry, to occupied lands, how does Israel justify West Bank settlements under international law and their effort on peace? I messed up that one word. That really probably threw you off. With the UN Red Cross, ICG, etc., affirming the Fourth Geneva Convention's applicability to the occupied lands, how does Israel justify West Bank settlements under international law and their effect on peace? That's a big question. 
Yeah, so I'm 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 not an expert on international law, so I'm not I don't know that aspect of it, but I think there is generally speaking a consensus in international law that uh, the settlement building is illegal. Uh, the way Israel currently justifies it, um, th there's there's two justification. One is really like a historical slash re religious justification that that's our historic homeland, uh, and we're you know we have the right to live and build there. The other is for security. It's kind of seen as a buffer zone between. Uh, uh, in enemy population and Israel proper. Um, the Historically, the majority of the Israeli population hasn't been in supportive of settlement building, but they've kind of just been indifferent to it. So they haven't actively fought against it. Um, it hasn't been important enough to them. Those who want to build settlements has been very important to them. So they've been actively fighting. So even though it's been, uh, let's call it a large minority, it's been a, a way more um, way more energized force in uh, Israeli politics and uh, quite unfortunate too, because, you know, it, it's, it's definitely made the conflict harder to solve. It's definitely aided in the radicalization of the Palestinian people, uh, not only by them losing hope at, at the future of a state, but also the more settlers that live in the West Bank, the, the greater the security apparatus uh, Israel, in, you know, ha has there. And that security apparatus keeps Jews safe, but in is inherently oppressive to Palestinians. So I think settlement building has been, um, by and large, um, you know, counterproductive to, to any any desirable goal of, of, of peace and reconciliation. That being said, I do think in an ideal situation, Jews should have the right to live on all parts of the land, uh, the same way, you know, Israel has 20% Palestinian population. Uh, in an ideal situation, Jews can live on their his historic homeland, but it shouldn't need to be done by force and uh, with an active military keeping them safe. Any other thoughts on the panel there? Yeah, I would just mostly agree with Adarn. All right. Well, let's carry on, everybody. Uh, we got uh, a couple more Super Chats coming in here. Uh, we just put up a new poll there. Uh, so let's continue on. Uh, Palio conservative says, why can't Israel adopt a one state solution without an ident a core identity and just have a liberal secular democracy with one person, one vote like J orgs in the West want every Western country to be? Because democracy ends up being another game of power and another game of existence. We see it in Western civilization. Uh, ultimately, there's a group that controls democracy and it becomes a form of violence itself when that group imposes its will to the rest of the nation. Yeah, I actually agree with that for the most part. I think you're going to have two, two populations who currently hate each other competing over demographic control. It's just going to end in disaster. Pretty much, yeah. So... I mean, that's we all democracy. agree, no democracy. <laughs> yeah, democracy is just, yeah, that, so. Well, no democracy in a, in a one-state solution, unless we're really talking federation of, of sorts, and uh, you have a system of checks and balances and, you know, dual control. I think that that could work, but, like, this whole idea... But that always second... fails, though. Look in America, they just cede more power to, instead of states, people don't want to rule uh, their states, they just give up power to the national government. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think in, in, in America, I mean, America is failing for many reasons. Um, I, I don't know how much it comes down to their federation, but from what I understood, the majority of the world's population currently lives in some kind of a federated system. You know, you have, um, I think even China might be uh, some, some. No, China is. Yeah. But I just mean, uh, and, what happens and, 
they inadvertently always cede more power to uh, national governments, which then the national government has the most power and then they vote in and then the majority dominant group is always going to dominate and oppress Mm -hmm. the others. Well, that, that's probably happening in China as well, in, in all fairness. But I think like Switzerland is probably a good example of a federation that works, you know, because because Switzerland maybe is a good example because you have like Swiss German, Swiss, Swiss French and Swiss Italians, right? They, you know, a lot of Swiss people can't even speak the same language, which is quite interesting. And they, they have that's this- on race, not on religion. As soon as you want to be religious, they start oppressing you and, in, in, uh, you know, so. Is, is mean, that, Muslims, is that- currently, Muslims currently there in, in a... In, in Europe, pretty much are like having the Abaya ban. They're having their children taken away because they're teaching in, in them Switzerland. Not in Switzerland, excuse me, just in like Europe in general. There's a couple of countries that it's happening. So I think it was Sweden and then Denmark and Germany. So and then France obviously is always bad. But yeah, I I, say, I would say one way to look at that is they're they're fighting back not against the religion as much as they're fighting back against the culture that they view to be um, like antithetical to the western values that that they espouse, but you know that's uh whether it's justified or not i you know i think that's probably what what drives it um and and for the record you know i think that there's a you know humans have this like tendency to attribute uh like hate to a certain group uh so for example they'll see muslims doing something so they'll say islam is the problem but all you do then is you really um demonize an entire group of people when you know t- take the worst view one muslim has you're not going to find agreement amongst all muslims on that so why demonize an entire group uh, for the actions and beliefs of some so rather than talk about the group talk about the beliefs and the individuals rather than the group so that's just a a, a rule of thumb i like to go by and same, same thing with the talk about jews who have power right like uh, there's a lot of anti-Jewish sentiment and they talk about Jews and the, them having disproportionate power and that and their their agenda. Well, I would say, tell tell me who they are and tell me what they believe rather than making it about the Jews, because then you really demonize all Jews and most Jews are not in these positions of power. So s- similar, similar way of looking at it. All right. yeah, but a lot of those people are like secular atheists and they're right. pushing like a secular liberal agenda. So, I mean, I, I would right. argue... Uh, you, you're right. The Jews that, that have the most power are generally atheists, or at the very least, secular. And, uh, and and but but what's interesting is they're often accused of Jewish supremacy. So there's this interesting thing anti-Semites do. And and for the record, I do think like the term racism and like the term transphobia, anti-Semitism has been way too broadly defined. And and people, uh, you know, of these groups just label every, anyone that term that disagrees with them. And it's tragic because it just dilutes the meaning of the term. So when I say anti-Semite, I actually mean somebody who has, uh, cl- you know, clear signs of anti-Jewish sentiment. But what anti-Semites often do is they will um, look at like uh, writings in the Talmud, which is a extension to the the Old Testament. It's, it's essentially conversations that were had by Jews uh, while exiled. So while they were oppressed. So, you know, unsurprisingly, you have texts there that are anti-Gentiles, which are non-Jews. Uh, this, these were texts that were written while Jews were oppressed by Gentiles. So then what anti-Semites will do, they'll look at these texts and they say some pretty bad things about Gentiles, um, not things that are, you know, should be believed or that are justifiable uh, and that are akin to Jewish supremacy. And then they'll attribute those beliefs to those, the Jews who have power. And they'll say, you see, Jews have disproportionate power and they have these supremacist views. But in reality, the Jews who have power uh, don't believe in the Talmud. They don't believe in the Torah. They're atheists or some are just like secular Jewish and have liberal values. So 
it, it seems like they're connecting dots that ought not be connected. And it seems like the bigger problem is that they might not like liberalism. Uh, they, they think liberal values are destroying the country, and they think Jews are some of the biggest propagators of these liberal values, so they take issue with that. Well, if that's the case, talk talk about liberal values and talk about the individuals you don't like um, pushing those views, because there's many uh, there's many Christians doing that as well, and even many Muslims doing that. So it's just a better, less inflammatory way to talk about the things that we don't like. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't have a problem with that. But if you say, for example, like George Soros or like certain people are doing and pushing that kind of an agenda, then you get labeled as an anti-Semite for some reason, which is weird because I'm just talking about George Soros and like specific people with a lot of institutions. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. I, 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 I think critique of George Soros is legitimate and anybody calling uh, those who critique him anti-Semitic, I think they're doing a great disservice because anybody who's willing to name the name and name the action is actually doing exactly what is needed to to solve uh, these forms of group hate. They're not contributing it to it. And those who will just continue to label them, uh, whatever that, you know, whatever term it is, whether it's racist, uh, sexist, transphobic or anti-Semitic, they're just contributing to, to more of this problem. So I, I would agree with that. All right. Well, let's try the to carry on. The reality is that the over... The reality is that the overuse right, of anti-Semitism as a bludgeon is not helpful. Um, just because I, for instance, don't support, I think that we should, the United States should cut back on the military support to Israel by no means makes me an anti-Semite. Um, so yeah, I would agree with that. You anti-Semite? Yeah. Okay, we're in agreement again. Cool. Did you guys want to cook for a yes. few seconds on that or do you want me to carry on? Carry on. Robin Webster, I'll smile. There you go. Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not I'm not ashamed. It's fine. I'm all gums. All right. Let's carry on. Uh, let's see. Uh, that was our first super chat from Paleo Australia, uh, conservative Australian. So thank you so much for that. Uh, Sunflower membership chat says everyone has been reasonable and respectful so far. Thank you. Well, I think everybody has been absolutely wonderful. We thought that this would be uh, really fiery and I I padded. You, you know, I think everybody will tell you before we started this discussion, I don't usually give a whole lot of padding of like, let's stay respectful, let's keep things calm. But this time I did. And uh, these guys, I don't think I even had to give them that warning. They just, they know how to uh, navigate this discussion without uh, getting upset with each other and being professional. So you got to appreciate our speeches for that. A round of virtual applause for them. Uh, let's carry on. Stupid whore energy asks, uh, just the name, Israel attacked Egypt, Jordan, and Syria without being attacked. Wait, sorry, can, can you... Can you uh, I don't know enough about the story, but it seemed that the seven-day war, there was uh, attacks toward Israel. No, 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 no. That was our strike. They they literally admitted. By the way, you can you can look it up that they said that uh, they what happened was from what I understand from the seven day yeah, war. Yeah, I, she's talking about now. By the way, she they're talking about now. Uh, oh, twenty three. Israel is doing okay. that. But wait, in the wait. seven day war, you can look into that. That's very debated. Um, and some uh Israeli supporters will say that it was a preemptive strike. So. Mm. Can you um? The, I, I apologize. I I have a short attention span and got lost in thought for a moment. What what were the countries uh, that were? Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Egypt. 
I mean, it, it, it sounds like they're referring to the six day war because right now, uh, no, no. It, can you ask for a clarification, uh, Ryan? Because well, well, they're referring to the it, it happened war. now this year as well. They well, put there, white there, there was, first in Lebanon and they've attacked areas of Syria, Egypt as well. They, yes. they bombed Egypt. Sure. This uh, year. Yeah, so there, Stupid Horror um, Energy, if you can give us some clarification in the live chat or throw in another super chat, we'd appreciate it. But uh, let's keep you uh, – you got some I, more I, thoughts. I, I, Go I, ahead there. I, I, could, I could speak to, to both, really. Um, Israel is bombing Lebanon every single day. I was, I was just in northern Israel. You could hear the bombs. And Lebanon is, is uh, shooting rockets in Israel every single day or shooting anti-tank uh, rockets. So, so there's actually an active conflict there. It's just neither side wants it to fully escalate. Um, so they're kind of doing like a little tit for tat back and forth. Um, I'm almost certain this that there was a there was a rocket shot. It might have not even been Hezbollah. It could have been a Hamas faction within um, within Lebanon that shot the first rocket, which which started it. Um, but Israel does sometimes preemptively strike in Syria, for example, like they'll see like a weapons convoy that's connected to Iran and, and they'll preemptively strike it. So it's not that Israel doesn't engage in preemptive strikes ever that they sometimes do. Uh, there was one, there was one instance of a tank that was some rocket or missile that was shot in Egypt and Israel very quickly apologized. Israel has zero reason to attack Egypt right now. We've been in a, a soft peace with them for for decades now, and and we like the relationship we have with them. So there's no reason to escalate things with Jordan or Egypt. These are two countries we haven't been in war with uh, for, for decades. If we're talking about the Six-Day War, that was a preemptive strike. Uh, you had many Arab nations uh, putting military forces on the border of Israel. And on, on Arab, Arab radio, you would hear them say that the days of Israel are numbered, uh, we are going to destroy them. So it was a preemptive strike, but it, it it certainly wasn't out of the blue. It was it was to a direct threat of of Israel's destruction, uh, and you know Israel uh, dealt with it. Uh, and again, you can make the case that they should have wait, waited to be struck. But again, uh, Israelis, generally speaking, would rather be despised than be dead. Um, and I think this is essential to to remember when when you know looking how to how to move forward. If uh, if we're talking about something that's going to put Israelis in danger, there's going to be resistance to it. And it doesn't matter how, what term you want to use to describe Israelis. They're, they're going to be they, they'd rather that that descriptor than than the loss of their own life. All right. Any other thoughts on the panel before we move on? I mean, there was a there's like a lead up to it that I would say is Israel's aggression. But um, that caused the would, war. But yeah, I would encourage people to look into it. Um, as it's far very as debated. The, seven, the, six, the six day war, there's a military buildup in at least three countries uh, with a, a extreme amounts of saber rattling and direct threats. Um, Israel said if the canal was closed, they would uh, attack. The canal was then promptly closed. They attacked. Um, so that was the story. Yeah. All right. But Egypt closed closed it to uh, to apply pressure to Israel and the U.N. to uh, supposedly help the Palestinians, I think, if I remember right. So. Which you know, while, while engaging in a, while engaging a large scale military build up, build up on the border along with three other nations, so I mean the question is again, do you want to be dead or not? Like yeah, I mean I just can can we imagine for a moment? And and again, I understand that given how Israel was created and given the injustice, 
uh, towards Palestinians, it's very hard to accept Israel. I, I understand that. And there's also a very strong honor culture in the in the Middle East. And that makes it even harder to, to accept Israel's existence. But could you imagine that instead of spending all these resources and all this life on fighting Israel that that um you know Palestinians would just focus primarily on on building themselves up and building up their own nations like all the hundreds of millions of dollars that that Hamas spends on on building tunnels and rockets imagine if that was that was spent on building infrastructure for Gazans uh and and that ultimately would be the fastest way to end the siege because the only way the siege is justified is because it's it's obvious that if there isn't a siege more weapons would be imported into into Gaza so sometimes it's better to 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 focus on building yourself than fighting an enemy and I'll give you a clear example uh, this is actually what Jews did. Jews were oppressed for for centuries in, in Europe. Uh, and it's a different type of oppression, right? This is a call it like a colonial anti-colonial conflict, whereas in the middle uh, where in Europe, it was more a minority group being oppressed. But what Jews did when they were oppressed, they didn't they didn't start attacking civilians or, or attacking um, the, the state. What they did was they just really focused on building themselves uh, focusing on on you know their own people, and they eventually got to the point where they're now accused of controlling the world. Think about that. Think about an oppressed population that you know the term ghetto was initially coined to describe uh, Jewish neighborhoods. They were they were the first ghetto. Uh, Jews were extremely poor for many centuries, and they rose up from the ashes to again the point where now you know we're hated for having too much power. So you know let let this be inspiration that sometimes it's better to work on building yourself up than trying to defeat. Uh, an enemy where when fighting this enemy only makes them hate you more and 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 fight back harder jf you're nodding your head along uh, did you have some thoughts no no okay that's no problem no, no i was just reading my other screen <laughs> no, that's fine that's fine don't worry about that uh, my friend we'll carry on there uh let's see uh stupid horror energy thank you so much for that super chat watermelon a much friendlier name 786 <laughs> why should we trust israel when they have uh kahanists kahanists in government Honest. who rise on deter uh, is expulsion of all arabs between the river and the sea Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the fact that we have actual Kahanists in, in government is 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 terrible. And again, the Israeli population is the most right wing and the most radical it's ever been because conflict radicalizes people. So let this be just another reason to to bring us away from violent conflict, because, it, you know, if a population can be radicalized through violence, they could be de-radicalized de from periods of nonviolence. Um and just so you know, the Kahanist party was actually banned from Israel, right? For a little context, uh, Mayor Kahana was a very radical Israeli rabbi, and he wanted, A, Israel to be a Jewish theocracy, and B, to uh, remove all Palestinians from the land. Uh, and Israel actually banned his party as a political party. Uh, now we've really, you know, the past decades of Netanyahu being in rule and, and Israel is losing hope, um, the right has certainly been strengthened, and you definitely have... A few people in power now that uh, adhere to his ideology, but it's definitely not the majority of Israelis. And again, public opinion, the only constant in change and let this let this give us hope for what's possible. Right. So if, if we if we have uh, years of calm and and work towards a, a peaceful solution, then you're going to see a less radical Israeli population and with that a less radical Palestinian population.
Oh, I'm muted. Look at that. Look at that. I have to hit that button. All right. So we're, <laughs> we're going to go over our poll. If any of our speakers wants to use the washroom, they heard me. They can use the washroom. That's fine. Uh, yes, use the washroom. That's fine. Uh, so let's carry on. Uh, we have a poll in our live chat here. So if you haven't voted yet, uh, you know, vote in the live chat uh, whether, you know, you thought JF or Hussein or Salha or Justice was the most compelling speaker. Right now we have 46 for JF. So, uh, you know, if you, if you feel differently uh, or right now, that seems pretty one sided. So get your votes in before we close that out. Uh, Hussein has ducked out for a second here as I've given permission my ultimate permission to go and use the washroom if you need to or get yourself some water, whatever you need to. That's cool. Um, I will ask the next super chat. I see some action back there. I'm not sure if that's Hussein coming back, but yeah, that's fine. I'm glad you can all hear us now. If you don't, if you haven't already, hit the like button. Share this out in those contentious spaces where you like to have these discussions. This is uh, definitely a different uh, type of conversation you're going to see happening in these spaces. So our next Super Chat is coming in from Kai Industrial Complex. says, Silha, Israel doesn't have a history of attacking Palestinians when it's not under a threat of violence. Please explain the reasoning behind the 82 Lebanon War and the siege of Beru and the atrocities at Sabra and Shatila. Shatila. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm ad admittedly not well enough informed to give to to give a proper take on this. So I, I apologize, but I can't I can't answer this. Um, but generally speaking, if you do look at the history of uh, of Israel's attacks uh, on Palestinians or other Arab nations, there's always been um, some violence or threat of violence that has preceded it. Um, and again, I think there's a legitimate case to make that Israel has acted dis disproportionately or acts disproportionately. So that's not the defense I'm saying. But generally speaking, the, the Israeli public uh, don't, you know, th there's not going to be public support for attacks that that don't have a justification that's that's deemed uh, necessary for security. All right. Any other thoughts on our panel before we carry on? No. I was busy being born in 82, so I don't remember. No, I'm kidding. The uh, the Lebanon war had to do more with the expulsion of the uh, uh, Palestinian um, organization that was inside of Lebanon. Um, and there was, there was issues with there. So there's, it's, it's a confused uh, bit, like a lot of stuff, but I would say that if you look into that, that was not Israeli aggression. Gotcha. Any thoughts over there, JF, before we carry on? All right. You're shaking your head again. Let's carry into the next question. Thank you so much for that or that first super chat there, uh, Kai Industrial Complex. Uh, we really appreciate the super chats. Keep them coming in if you want to keep stirring the pot of our discussion. Uh, so Stupid Horror Energy asks us again, with high civilian deaths, high-impact munitions in dense areas and harsh living conditions imposed, how is this not considered a genocide? Hussein so, uh, is just putting his headphones back on. Uh, can yeah. you hear us, Hussein? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, I'll repeat the, ener uh, the, uh, the, the energy question. Stupid Horror Energy asks, with high civilian deaths, high-impact munitions in dense areas, and harsh living conditions imposed, how is this not considered a genocide? 
Let us start over. You know what? Let's uh, start with you, uh, uh, Adir, and we'll move our way through. Sure. Um, genocide is about intention. And uh, there's no intention to destroy the Palestinian population. And I would go on to say that there is a record number of Israelis who would actually support genocide at this point in time. Um, but the reality is, as I stated earlier, Israel has dropped an average of one bomb on Gaza per death. How do you drop one bomb on an extremely densely populated area and kill only one person per bomb dropped? So I want to break down a little bit more about what Israel is doing. And again, I think there's le there's legitimate criticism of it. I think Israel has uh, committed multiple war crimes um, in, in this round of violence. And again, I'm not an expert on international law, but I think there's a strong case to be made that Israel is committing war crimes. Um, the law of proportionality, which actually um, uh, JF read earlier, is one that's important to understand. It's actually an interesting... Uh, it's an interesting law because this is how Israel justifies what it does. So the rule of proportionality, this is how it's, it's read, requires that anticipated incidental loss of human life and damage to civilian objects should not be excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage expected from destruction of a military objective. Um, the problem with that is that that's highly subjective. How can you determine if the civilian damage is excessive in relation to the military advantage, right? There, there's, it's super up for interpretation. So I think the law of proportionality needs to be modified in some way to make it a little bit more objective. So the way Israel looks at things, you know, they're not trying to maximize civilian harm because if they were trying to, you'd have a much, much, much higher civilian death toll. What they're doing is just not caring all too much if civilians die, if that means they get to kill some Hamas members while they're doing it or destroy Hamas infrastructure. Um, so let me give you an example. There could be uh, a home where there is, um, let's say there's Hamas members in it. They have a calculation. So you know what? There's three Hamas members in it, but there's also a family in there. Israel might decide to bomb it. They might. Uh, and you could very well make the, there's a strong case that that's disproportional. That's a war crime. Israel sees it as, okay, you know, civilians are dying as collateral damage and we're destroying Hamas members. In the instance when there's not no Hamas members in there and they want to destroy infrastructure that's embedded within civilian infrastructure, what they do is they actually shoot a warning shot. They tell people to leave the homes. They'll sometimes even call the people in the homes, tell them to leave, and then they'll destroy it because they're trying to cause maximal infrastructural damage while reducing civilian harm. Keep in mind, Israel doesn't have anything to gain by killing civilians. I mean, I, I guess perhaps there's a case to be made that they have some incentive to kill journalists because journalists can report on their crimes. So I'm not going to say that there's no incentive there, but the, your, your everyday civilian, there's no incentive to kill because all that is is, is horrible PR for Israel. And as we see, Israel uh, tries uh, you know, very hard to win the PR war and unsuccessfully. And, and quite frankly, they've done an embarrassing job with some of the videos they've put out. But what what is Israel really gained from from killing civilians? Um, they, they they have an interest to defeat Hamas. They have an the interest to create maximum infrastructural damage, and perhaps now they have an interest to move as many Gazans south as possible, which would also justify them. You know. Um, creating massive infrastructural damage. The whole idea that they're indiscriminately targeting civilians and trying to cause as much civilian harm as possible just isn't reflected. But here, uh, Adar keeps bringing back the, they are not trying to maximize civilian death. That has never been our, our point. 
Our point is the actions committed qualify under the term genocide. That's my point. And I've never talked of maximization. Yes, Israel does have uh, uh, probably quick, I, a... I wasn't speaking down? just to you. I, I, I was talking about what we hear online, how they say Israel is trying to, you know, indiscriminately target civilians. I know, I, I know based on the definition you read that it could be a, you know, partial harm, but I still think based on the definition you read, it, it does not meet the criteria of genocide. And that's what I wanted to comment on. Uh, this whole obfuscation over the word intent is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, what Adar is telling us is basically there might be a genocide happening, but it was unintentional. Uh, does it really matter at this point, the word intentional and the, the degree of mens rea that you need to have when you decide to send 15,000 bombs toward a civilian population. As far as I'm concerned, any intelligent human being with a 100 IQ should be able to conclude it's going to kill a lot of civilians, therefore it's intentional. Yeah, I mean, it may be crude to to say, but you could say like, say, uh, do I want to go there? Uh, when Hitler rounded up people in the ghettos right if he just started indiscriminately bombing them and then kept saying to the un why aren't they leaving why aren't they why are they shielding the resistance movement yada 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 and then kept bombing them i mean that's what i mean they're doing the same thing hitler hitler had pushed a them all into an area a literal open air prison and then said oh why aren't they going south why aren't they they should just go south why won't they just leave their land they just need to get out of gaza and then they're indiscriminately bombing. I mean, you could argue, yeah, they're not effectively genociding them enough, but they are doing their goal, which is to push them out. Correct. Which and 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 if they don't let them return, then that would be ethnic cleansing, right? But just based on definitions, um, I, I I mean, if we want to talk about Hitler, Hitler had a clear intention of destroying the Jewish population. The Jewish population reduced by. Uh, 30 to 50% in like a matter of, of eight years. So I think uh, that's very different than the Palestinian population tripling. Israel, again, has the means to reduce the Palestinian population had they intended to. So to see a tripling of, of a Palestinian population, clearly, clearly that's not what genocide looks like. We just admitted that they can't do it. The age of genociding is the age of your definition of genocide is over in the information age. So we think ethnic cleansing constitutes genocide. But if you want to disagree, whatever, I'll use your terminology forward. I think the reason there's a different term between like the reason we have genocide is one term and ethnic cleansing another term is because they're distinct. And it, it doesn't mean that one is moral and the other is not, but it's it's there's they're not the same thing. So just so we don't get stuck on these semantic arguments, it's better to be accurate in the terminology we use. And I really, you know, and and I don't think I've sh I've shown any sign of of again. We're all we all have our bias, but I I make a real effort to to try to be as fair as possible. So I I have no intention to defend Israel. Israel has you know uh, committed many crimes, and I'll speak on those crimes. And I think it's essential if we want to move forward, we need to be honest about the crimes both sides commit. So if Israel has committed genocide, I'd stand here and and say Israel is committing genocide. But I, I like to be honest. I like to be fair. So I'm going to go and say that Israel has engaged in ethnic cleansing. I think currently Israel is committing war crimes. And I think if Israel doesn't let the Palestinian population, uh, the, the Gazan population return to, to North Gaza, then that would be another instance of ethnic cleansing. And I think that's that's speaking truly honest on the situation. You're sharing something. Just, right a now, seconds, not, please. Please. Just hold on a second. JF, you're sharing something on your screen right now. 
Uh, I know it's in an effort to try to obfuscate what Sola might have been saying right there, but do you want to share your screen so we can actually see what you're putting up? Because it's so small on our live stream, nobody can see what it is that you've got highlighted there. I'm more than fine if you want to do a screen share, but you know nobody can see what you got going on there. JF, are you there? While we're waiting for JF, I'd just like to jump in and say that disproportionality might be a nice uh, classroom type of uh, moral concept, but wars are won by applying disproportionate force to your foe. And if you're invading an area, no matter it, that's a, that's occupied militarily, a civilian area, there is no way to fight your military opponents without affecting the civilians. And we can talk about the niceties of war, but that's the reality. You win wars by applying disproportionate force. And yes, there are going to be civilian casualties. To say that it's a crime, it has to you have to show intent or criminal negligence. And so intent is very important in this conversation. All right. Um, I forgot to ask you guys. So if Hamas just wins, right? And then they say, oh, if you're Jewish, you can stay there or you have to leave if you're like a Zionist supporter and you ever want to have a Jewish homeland again. Um, Like, so you're saying just might makes right. That's what you guys all agree on, essentially. I, I would say not 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 on a moral level. I think in practicality, generally, those who have might get to de- get to determine, uh, you know, the, the the nature of reality. Uh, you know, generally speaking, I like to take a step back and not, you know, my, my morality not based is not based on who has more power. Um, but I also very much acknowledge those who have most power are going to act in that way. All right. Let's try okay. to move on there, fellas. Right, like, and, and Hussein, Hussein, like, you, you know, to speak to that point, if, if Hamas right, so, wins. Go ahead. If, if Hamas wins, the Jews will be genocided. It doesn't make it justified. That's just the reality of the situation, you know? Why, why do you think that if their charter says no, though? Like, why do you not believe Hamas? If I'm supposed to believe Israel, why will you not believe Hamas? They, Hamas changed. Um, well, I, I'll, I'll tell you why, you know. Hamas very much has had, um, has tried to modernize themselves to get acceptance from the international community. So removing genocide from their charter has been awfully convenient. Uh, but if we look at the nature of the October 7th attacks, um, a, a third of those killed were uh, military, two thirds were were civilians. And then you had a, a Hamas leader come out and said, we'll continue similar attacks uh, till, till the end of Israel. Both, both Hamas uh, and the Palestinian population are loud and clear when they say they want to rid the land of Jews. Uh, again, it's not it's not everyone, but those calling for peace, you don't hear those calling for the destruction of Israel are loud, and you don't hear any condemnation of them in, in Palestinian society. So th- this is really about taking Palestinians at their word, which I think is is important to do. But I also want to leave people with hope and not think that this is the destiny of Palestinian sentiment, because given in different environmental conditions, Palestinian sentiment will change. So we need to work to change the environmental conditions to be more hospitable to, to create a you know a population that's oriented to peace. But right now, Right now, you know, there's no reason to think that it won't end in genocide. Okay. All right. Anybody have uh, JF or Justice? You have any thoughts on that before we move on? I know I, you know, I don't want to cut you guys out just because. So Adar uh, <laughs> has a problem with describing current events as genocide, but he can he allows himself to talk of future genocide in an even looser way. 
that is quite fascinating to me. Right. He's also wait, justice. So, wait, wait. So, Jeff, you're saying, in order for me to be suspicious of a population committing genocide in the future, I need to incorrectly define genocide in the present. I, I don't follow your logic. No, uh, I'm saying seconds. that if you want to allow yourself speculations about the future potential for genocide, you should definitely be alarmed at ongoing genocides. All right. Again, so so what you're saying is the only way I can be alarmed for future genocide is if I incorrectly describe genocide today. I don't follow that logic. Last rebuttal. Uh, then the, the UN question. is also incorrect about its definition. I guess the whole historic history community and the people who do international law, they're all incorrect. All right, we're moving on, fellas. We got our next question coming in. Uh, lots of great unfolding there. Thank you so much for that question. Uh, we had a lot of fun with that. Uh, Isaac Beer uh, says, great convo. Hussein, JF Justice, uh, Adair on a hard topic. Uh, no no kidding there, Isa. And I, I absolutely want to extend a thank you to everybody in the live chat. Uh, when I put in the live chat that I did not want to hear any more of a specific thing that was going on in the live chat, and you all respected that. Uh, I haven't seen any more of it, so, you know, uh, let's carry on. Uh, so, uh, NZ says, I propose a scientific experiment for Jews and Muslims to live peacefully together. Put them together in a small area in each country with different isolated parameters. Spain builds youth centers. France enforces French. Finland, a rural life, etc. As the only European Sorry, in this GM. debate, I reject the offer for Europe. But if you want to try this in India, go ahead. I, I think uh, we, we should ground our ideas in reality. Israelis aren't going anywhere. Palestinians aren't going anywhere. Um, let's accept this as, as fact and let's move forward from there. All right. Well, we can move forward from there. Well, thank you so much for your super chat. I'm sorry we didn't have more to unfold on that. Uh, I will let everybody know, uh, as per usual, we will be doing an after show uh, over on me and Ozian's channel, uh, which is Matters Now. Uh, we had a really cool interview with James there. Uh, if anybody uh, cares to go and look at that, uh, we had good discussion about where we think the future of debate is going. Um, and you know, we have a lot of cool discussions over there and a lot of cool guests on uh, matters. Now I also put the Streamyard link for all of our guests here, uh, if they want to join, but of course, uh, you know, these discussions can be absolutely draining and, uh, we want to make sure that we are giving our speakers a chance and a space to, uh, like I say, uh, get their drinks and, uh, also get out of here at a decent time, right? Like nobody wants to be hanging out forever. Uh, but if you do want to hang out afterwards, love it. Bite me XD says, as a Christian in American, uh, in America, I'm sick and tired of my tax dollars going to a foreign war like Ukraine and Israel. When is Israel going to stop to uh, stop running to us to back them? I'm so sick and tired of them and Zelensky. So that's from Bite Me XD. Thoughts on that panel? Absolutely, you're right, and it's not going to stop as long as we allow foreign interests to be controlling of American politics, really. And as long as the Israeli financial networks and Israeli supporting financial networks of the world and the Jewish diaspora in particular participates to the political pressure they do, America will continue being a slave to Israeli interests for many decades. So. Does anyone? Yeah, it is. Uh, I had a question on that. Adir, do you find it weird that you can't have like Chinese or Russian dual citizenship with America? 
uh, or like Arab dual citizenship, but like Israel is the only one from what I understand that you can, or is, maybe there's some other states. There are a few others. Um, well, I think Russia and China aren't a good example because those aren't in the U.S. sphere of influence. So they're seen um, as, you know, essentially enemies. Um, I, I think if we were to break down why uh, America views Israel as so favorable, or at least in policy and funding, some of it comes down to the pro-Israel lobby. And that's generally what, what we hear about. But I think there's actually more reason to it than that. Uh, one of them, as we mentioned earlier, military industrial complex, uh, you know, 70% of, of the funding Israel gets needs to be respent in American companies, essentially having it be a, a subsidy for war companies. Um, and, and then and then th this is a reason that is is very much understated. It's it comes from um, United States geopolitical like um, consideration. The, the United States wants to increase their sphere of influence, right? So any country that is currently within their sphere of influence that is battling those who are outside of their sphere of influence, they're going to prop up heavily, right? There's not a strong pro-Ukraine lobby uh, in the United States. So why is the United States giving billions of dollars to Ukraine, right? So clearly just blaming the pro-Israel lobby, it's not, it, it, it's, it might play into it, but it's not enough of, of the reason why that support is there. The, the pro-Israel lobby could di disappear tomorrow and, and U.S. foreign policy would still give Israel $4 billion and still be very supportive of, um, of, of Israel. What might change is the amount of politicians that's, that uh, speak favorably of, uh, of Israel, right? So you might have a situation where politicians are trying to listen to their voter base but they also want to listen to their donors and there might be a little bit of contention there. So that might change, but U S foreign policy is not going to change if the pro-Israel lobby disappears. All right, let's move on to our next question. Sorry about that, everybody. I accidentally left the uh, subscribe label over my face for so long that you thought, you know, something must have happened to me, and that's okay. I'm okay. Uh, <laughs> let's carry on. Robin Webster, most Arab nations are also Semitic. Semite refers to any people that speak a Semitic language. It's a declaration. Uh, what do we have to say about that, our panel? Uh, yes. I guess... I could speak to that. I, I've been speaking so much, so if somebody else wants to, but this is this is really about the term anti-Semitic. Yeah, I think JF, you had some uh, thoughts there. I mean, it, it's just correct, uh, but it really doesn't matter. We know what people mean to say when they say anti-Semitic. They mean anti-Jew, and everyone understands. So it really doesn't matter this Semite thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's today becomes synonymous with anti-Jewish. So th th there's no reason to pretend like it means something else. And and also, uh, Semitic isn't even a classification of language anymore. It's no longer used. So that's it's not even true that that's the case. All right. Well, let's carry on. Uh, we got lots of more Super Chats coming in. Well, actually, not too many more. We're winding down. Uh, if you have any more questions in the live chat, I see you're very lively uh, there in the live chat, quote unquote. Uh, put them into a Super Chat and we will try to keep the conversation going. These guys did go a little overtime during their open discussion. But uh, like I said, I think this was a little long overdue for modern day debate to be uh, having this discussion. So it's fine that we went a little overtime, I think. Yeah, nobody's giving me any like dark eyes or anything like that. So I think we'll carry on and uh, nobody's too upset. Arcade 
outpost says to Salah, you don't need ancient texts quoted out of context. Liberal Jays in the West make whole careers demonizing whites and whiteness while saying they aren't white and their cronies and and media amplify it. Thoughts on that? Absolutely. So very well said. Yeah, he, 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 here's a question back. Essentially, what you're describing, you're attributing to liberal Jews. But if you were to remove Jews from the equation, you would have liberals doing the same thing. So essentially what we're happening, we, we attribute certain qualities to a group. So Jews are dis- disproportionately represented in, in media, in Hollywood, in finance, a lot of positions of power. Um, so anybody who has concern with the political and ideological views of these institutions are naturally going to have a tendency to blame Jews for it because they're disproportionately represented. But they're not even the majority in most of these institutions. Um, like the, the majority of finance are not Jewish. They're just uh overrepresented by a few hundred to sometimes a few thousand percent um and again you know i i could understand that grievance but you remove the jews from power fine so you just have christian liberals who have the same views you don't really solve the problem so i, I think instead of blaming it on, a, on an ethnic group which only demonizes an entire group which which also keep in mind that just makes the group solidify more so the the best way to to make american jews be more american is to stop singling them out and demonizing them, right? Anti-Semitism leads to Jewish pride. Um, and you could see other instances for this. Even the P- Palestinian nationalism in many regards is a result of Zionism. And the reason why we still have, you know, pride parades every year is because gays traditionally didn't have the same rights as straight people. So when you when you group hate results in that group being more prideful. Uh, so there's no there's no stronger fuel to Jewish pride than anti-Semites. Uh, so instead of focusing on the group, focus, focus on the individuals you don't like and their beliefs and call them out. And that's a better way to deal with it. Uh, I disagree. Adar is making a strong claim here that you get the same state of anti-whiteism in Western civilization without the Jews. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that if you remove from the equation the Sigmund Freud, the various uh, Harvard professors that have been going strong after whiteness and wanting uh, strong, pu- strongly pushing the woke uh, talking points against whiteness, I'm not sure you get the same direction for civilization. I'm not sure even that the academia as a whole would be anti-white or that the liberals would be anti-white. I think it's a very strong claim with very little evidence here. Um, well, when you look at the rest of the institution, though, the non-Jewish parts of the institution, it's not like they're fundamentally different ideologically than than the Jews. So essentially what you're saying is the only reason they believe that is because the Jews convinced them. But you can, you could see a lot of reason for anti-white sentiment. Try to keep it Uh, Intersectionality is, is a very good political tool. All it does is combine a lot of minority groups into one voter base. It, It gets them to have a common enemy, the white man, and rally around this common grievance, which is which all, all that really does is allow the Democratic Party to rally voters and not really do anything to change the situation. It, it gives this like vague concept of anti-whiteness, fight anti-whiteness when we won't even change any policy that's going to make a difference. You can see why it's convenient for for any white liberal to to push that on, on a political basis. I, I don't think it has nearly as much to do with Jews as you think. Before we move on, did you have any thoughts on this uh, sentiment, Hussein, or justice? Uh, I mean, I don't. Uh, how do I explain it? Um, 
uh, all groups have like historically used their power to like abuse others. So I don't necessarily, um, and then um, they usually have like reformist movements. So, um, and to be honest, like a lot of what liberalism stands for has come in like secular humanism and atheism and like certain things that I don't personally agree with. Like they've all stemmed from like Christian uh, Christianity. So, and Judaism, to be honest. So, you know, I don't know. I think they're kind of both at fault for the current state of the world. So who, who's saying the irony is, is there's a lot of Islam Islamophobia right now, but most Muslim nations have barely any power and they're doing the bidding of the West. And then uh, they just keep getting wrecked anyways. And then, you know, your country gets wrecked, then you go to Europe and then you're getting blamed uh, oh, for all this problem, like in France. So French people F over North Africa, literally do massacres in Algeria, never take any um, credit for doing that. And then, uh, you know, somehow it's our fault that we have to immigrate there. And then, you know, we're not conforming to French things like, OK, well, I'll go back to Algeria if you just stop effing with Algeria. So. That's how I feel about that kind of stuff. All right, let's carry on, everybody. Uh, thank you so much for all your thoughts, gents, and, uh, you, you know, your amicability on this panel. This has been, like I said, it's not an easy topic uh, we thought to have a, de a debate on, uh, but you guys have made it really easy, and we really appreciate you. So uh, let's carry on. Uh, Arcade Outpost, uh, second question here. Thank you, buddy. Uh, to Salah, Jays are overrepresented. So it's Jews are overrepresented, overrepresented by their own admission in every academic and political org in the West. It's not an accident that we are told from the top down to accept refugees from wars for Israel. Thoughts on that panel? It's too salah. Uh, there's a lot there. Yeah, I mean the, the the vast majority of refugees in the United States have no connection to Israel or Palestine. So that I mean that's that's just not true. And again, these beliefs that you don't like, they're not Jewish beliefs, they're liberal beliefs. So it's true that the Jews that have disproportionate power are generally liberal, but it, you're making it an issue with the Jews rather than with liberalism. Call out the ideology, not the entire group of people, because most Jews don't have power um, or don't have more power than that the average American. And you have many Jews who also, you know, don't have that same ideology. So what do you actually gain from making it about the Jews rather than talking about the people in power and the beliefs that they hold? Besides, besides uh, really increasing Jewish pride and strengthening Zionism, that's really the result of, of this framing. It's, 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 it's a counterproductive framing. Not all framing by group is uh, counterproductive. Some may simply give further insight and may allow to be predictive of future things that you wouldn't have understood otherwise if you hadn't seen the world through the lens of race. I think it's very important. There are some basic facts, for example, and I'm getting out of the subject of Jews here just to give an example, but you can have certain rates of criminality in certain races. And from these rates, you can predict certain things. You can predict, I have that much chance of being uh, assaulted here. I have that much chance of being assaulted there. Uh, the same can be true of an intellectual understanding of, is there something special about the Jews that led to their particular contribution to Western civilization in a way that we could protect ourselves from it in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think there's uh, certainly Jewish individuals that, you know, Jewish individuals have certainly disproportionately, disproportionately contributed to parts of uh, 
of, of culture. And a lot of it is things like science and medicine and, you know, also call it wokeness. Um, but even your example of, of uh, populations that commit more crimes, I mean, it, it sounds like you're referring to, uh, uh, you know, black Americans. But even amongst black Americans, there's there's a huge disparity depending on where they originate from. Right. So like um, Caribbean Americans and African Americans and African immigrants from actual Africa all have different crime rates. Um, so it's better to be very specific about who you're talking about and talk more about the culture you don't like rather than the race. Because again, when you talk about the race, it's it's demonizing to all people. When you talk about the culture um, and the individuals, you're really only demonizing those who are acting in a certain way. Um, but and, sometimes and, uh, you'll be stuck and, without and, the yeah, facts at the individual yeah, level yeah. and the race category can be useful in these instances. And, and and you know what, Jeff, I would even go to agree. There are some instances where it makes easier. It's easier to describe things if you look at it in terms of racial and ethnic terms. But the downside, I think, isn't worth the utility you gain from it. Because, again, the downside causes the demonization of an entire group and generally that group to just have more pride and more nationalism. Um, and there's other ways to describe it that don't cause that that same effect. So I think those are the descriptors we should look for. So Adar, if you say like, say, uh, oh, I think, what if Jeff says like, oh, I think Jewish culture is an issue, then it's okay to you, I guess, or is that is that what you're saying? So I would ask, you know, there's certain aspects of, of Jewish culture that could be annoying, like Jews like to debate, you know, uh, we're, we're taught that debate is healthy from, from a young age. Um, if that annoys you, okay, fine. But generally the, the parts of Jewish culture that they're describing is just liberal ideology. It's it's not really anything inherent to Judaism. It's inherent inherent to liberal ideology, or even I wouldn't even call it liberal ideology because the 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 things that Jews today are, are are much of what Jews are hated for is this idea of of perpetuating like a woke ideology, which is not liberal. It's regressive. You know, let's be honest about that. But I mean, the the majority of woke people and woke activists are not Jewish. You know, they're, it's it's primarily white liberals, and then you have black liberals are, are the second largest group, and Jews probably come third or fourth. So I, I don't think it's uh it's right to look at it as Jewish culture. It's um it's 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 woke culture, and and you know I, I consider myself to be a liberal and quite anti woke because it's regressive and it's harmful. It's actually one of the uh, it's one of the dumbest ideologies today, and I'm surprised how popular it became given how irrational. Uh, and, and counterproductive it is to to any goal of, of building a better society. I'd like to just draw attention to the fact that our honored opposition uh, goes to the argument of the West controlling all Muslim nations, the Jews controlling all academia as some kind of an argument. I think this is just intellectually dishonest and rather lazy. But I think we all. Wait, how is that? How is that? Absolute but I think, but I, but I think can judge four, themselves. But I think all four of us can agree uh, that woke ideology is regressive and harmful. Sure, but how how is that regressive to say that like people have political power and there's a Western hegemony? I mean, like when we go back to even Israel and Britain, like Britain literally essentially was kingmaker in the Israel-Palestine discussion. So despite them promising Arab sovereignty, they essentially gave it to Israel and Zionists because they didn't want to have Jewish people in their country. 
that's that's literally what it stemmed from and then churchill for example said oh like a bunch of people were essentially anti-semitic and they're like i don't want to have the jews in my land so we should support zionism i seriously that, like that, uh, this is this is that... some conspiracy that they literally are admitting that western leaders were admitting I would, that i would again uh, heavily suggest that the audience inform themselves on the material uh, situate circumstances of the 1947 war and not use just simple YouTube talking points provided by Hussein here um, for that. Again, right. Zionism happened before the 1940s. Hussein, I have a question for you about, you know, how we talk about groups. Would you All prefer right, let's, that? Let's do it. Yeah. Would you prefer that Europeans say we have a problem with Islam or would you prefer we have a problem with um people who believe that apostasy should be punishable by death i don't have a problem with either but but don't you see as one targeting uh what's actually wrong and the other just talking about an entire religion no because i can ask for clarification but i understand that um and it really depends on the person too because one could be targeting the entire religion and one could be just using that as a tool to say that they have a problem with people who are um wanting to put to death people who do apostasy so if that makes sense, right? So it could be like a lazy tool by someone who is like maybe less educated. So when they're saying like, oh, I have a problem with with Muslims, right? Uh, it could be coming from like a lazy talking point. But what in reality yeah. they mean is like that we don't conform to quote unquote liberalism. Now, I would argue like they don't even conform to liberalism. And that's why liberalism is stupid. Um, but well, so so I would agree with you. I think it's often an easy descriptor, but it generally causes harm, right? Because that just breeds more Islamophobia and creates creates more tensions uh, between people. Um, so it's better to talk about the the ideology and people who believe that ideology rather than make it about the religion that not everyone of that religion uh, believes. So I think even let, let's say fifty percent of uh, of Muslims. Yeah, but what, what what those people are trying to do, for example, like David Wood or apostate prophet who gets hosted here regularly, they go online and then they say, "Oh, Islam says this," but then they remove all context and then they narrative build to make it as if it's like some demonic religion, ignoring what Christianity says about apostasy, ignoring about what liberals say about betrayal of their nation. So you can be an atheist, for example, or a sub someone who believes in subjective morality or whatever, or agnostic, and you'll still put to death someone you think is a betrayer or harmful to your nation. And there's plenty of people who have done that. So the fact of the matter is that in a way, to me, they're all hypocrites. So they all want to put to death their enemy or whatever, you know? So. Right. I, I, I would agree. Those people and the way they, they talk about it are, are the problem for sure. They, they make it about an entire group. Yeah, but I don't have a problem with like in a way they're doing it, I guess, because it's just like a lazy way of doing it. But um, I can I understand what you're saying, though. So, yeah. All right. I, 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 th I think in general, you know, the, 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 the there's there's so much hate today and, and, you know, social media just makes it so much worse. It's you know, you look at Twitter, it's, it's a shit show. And I think if we could all be a little bit more attentive on how we describe things, we can make a lot of progress in our ability to communicate with the other side effectively. So that that's why I. I, I push for this. Eerie, putting a little eerie, slightly there. finer point, put, 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 putting on a slightly finer point to Adar's, uh, you know, question to you, Hussein. What I would just say also, like Islam is an ideology, even though it is a religion, it's also an ideology. So it's even like saying I'm against Arabs as opposed to saying I'm against uh, Islam. Like that's that's really the finer point. Um, um, so I think 
you would have to agree that it would be better to say, you know, I'm against Islam as an ideology that people can either accept or reject, as opposed to saying I'm against all Arabs, regardless of whether or not they're, you know, part of that particular ideology, regardless of how right or wrong you are in the framing of the religion. Closing thoughts, who said? Sure, sure, I guess. I don't have a I don't have a problem with what you're saying. I guess to me, like the weird thing is like everything's an ideology or everything's a religion. Like when you and again, there's like polls on this, which I did with my prior debate on secular humanism. I mean, people do essentially, and the Quran talks about this, they they take whatever their belief is, be it atheism or whatever, and they expound it to a higher value that they want, making it their religion. So, you know, am I gonna be you, and, you and I would agree with you and I would you and I would agree on that. Um, but that's why I'm talking about it's it's not helpful to say the Jews, just as it's not helpful to see the Arabs, even if you believe that Islam is an ideology like Judaism or liberalism. Sure. All right. Let's carry on, fellas. Uh, we got a couple more Super Chats before we do close out the show. Uh, so I do want to once again th- say thank you to everybody who has been here. Samir asks, what if they both renounce their country name and live together under a new name to Hollyland? This experiment of living together worked in South Africa. Holy land. That's what he probably meant. Uh, I think Jeff would have uh, a Maybe a joke here. <laughs> but, I, but I like the joke. Very, very well done. South Africa didn't go well. Yeah, South Africa is not a, not a great success story. Um, My even though part of Let's catch it up with you, fellas. <laughs> Sorry, continue on. I'm just, I'm just having a laugh with you, fellas. What I mean, Jeff, uh, I have a question on that. Do you think that South Africa, like they should have just left back to like Dutch or wherever they're from? historically uh yes i've been totally stunned by the fact that there are white people in south africa and they they feel like they they, they're ready to die there rather than escape Uh, i i I would have escaped uh but i'm a different person i understand that there's a part of humanity they just stay in place and that's what causes a lot of drama and that's their right to me I'm not going, and you know, you have Israel very often saying, well, we warned the the civilians, they should have escaped north of Gaza. We told them we would bomb. Uh, I'm I'm totally hesitant at joining this side of the argument. And I tend to think that, yeah, you have the right to stay where you are. You, You do not have a duty to retreat to state violence. And so that's why I'm very admirative of the people who stay there. But personally, I'm a fleer. I'm a I keep fleeing. I, I flee uh, hundreds of years before the genocide actually begins. Is that a Canadian trait or a French trait? You know, if you believe in Th- that, that's the mix of both. <laughs> if you believe in race realism, you know, we <laughs> surrender. <laughs> I'm always going north, and I'm always going toward colder countries with the hope of not being in the middle of something like the Middle East isn't. Okay. No, so you know, on that question, though, I, I think our, our ability to to find a solution, we need to understand sentiment on the land, and the majority of Palestinians are are stuck on the name Palestine, and the majority of Israelis are stuck on the name Israel, and it's going to be very hard to change them. So don't don't resist in areas which aren't necessary to uh, resist. I think you could call, you know, if it's two states, you have Israel and Palestine, or if it's a federation, it could be the Federation of Israel and Palestine. Or we call it, we just call it Palestine, but S-T-E-I-N at the end to kind of talk about its Jewish uh, demographic. All right. Let's carry on, fellas. Uh, 
Robin Webster, second last question. If you have any other super chats in that live chat, get them in now because we're whining the heck down. That's me uh, making it PG fourteen. Robin Webster, we support Ukraine because of Budapest referendum. Thank you, Robin Webster, for your super chat. What do you think of that? Um, um, I think not a whole lot of thoughts. No, sorry. Yeah, I think justice. we support. Yeah, I think the West supports uh, Ukraine as a byproduct of the um, uh, support that the West gave to anti-Soviet countries during the Soviet Union and as a legacy artifact the fact that we were the guarantors of Ukrainian um, nuclear, uh, you know, giving up their nuclear weapons. And so this is a question for the, United, the American people is, do we if if we don't want to be the guarantors of people giving up their nuclear weapons, we shouldn't commit to that that kind of stuff. Um, so that's that's the reasons are pretty straightforward. Any other thoughts? Uh, I actually agree with Justin. Yeah. So, okay. JF, any thoughts? No, no, no. All right, uh, Salah, I you know I know that. Uh, I've given you quite a bit of speaking time. I'm not going to just, you know, pretend, uh, you know, that uh, uh, I've, I've tried to make sure that you got your thoughts out there. But did you uh, have any thoughts on this? I, I, I missed the Otherwise question. known as Adar. Uh, I'm, uh, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Salah, otherwise known as Adar. No, I, I was going to say, I really appreciate, uh, yeah, Adar's uh, 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 thoughts on this because, uh, you know, you definitely what, have some what, what, insight, what, so. what, was, what was the question again? I'm sorry. Uh, so they were trying to make a parallel, but I think what we should do is move on because we do have another question here. Maybe this will really... It was about Ukraine. Somebody trying to get me put in jail. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> You you come down to their over justice. He loves Russia. <laughs> you behave. All right. So last question coming in. Uh, this is from King Asola Wings. So let's see. I think King, you're going to stir the pot of discussion here. When will Palestine give the land back to the Ottoman Empire? Has Palestine won any wars ever? The two Hamas supporters are anti-American Marxists. You don't have to win a war to be the legitimate occupier of a place. When we visited Palestine back in the 19th century, it was filled with Arabs. And it doesn't matter exactly what happened with the Ottoman Empire. They could have just deserted this place and eventually it got reoccupied. Or there may have been military conflict. That doesn't matter at all to the question of what's happening today and uh, of properly labeling what's happening today in Israel. All right. Thoughts on the panel? Uh, yeah, I agree. Thought. It's kind of weird that he uh, just being labeled a Marxist. Uh, I don't think I would have heard that. Or a Hamas. Jeff is definitely, definitely, Jeff is definitely not a Marxist, but he is strange uh, saying that, oh, there were Arabs in Palestine during Ottoman rule. Um, yeah, he rejects the idea that uh, is the ethnic uh, inhabitants of Palestine who were also Jews uh, have a right to to the land. So, is the point that I'm making is a historical one, just the same point that Jeff just made. All right, any thoughts over there, Salah? Adir, uh, if the Ottoman Empire was still around, maybe there'd be a conversation to be had, but they're gone, so irrelevant. Bring back the calcite. 
All right. Excellent. Well, what we're going to do, everybody, is we will do a closing statement, one minute per each person on the panel here. Uh, we appreciate all of our speakers. Uh, J.F., Hussein, Justice, and Adir will be linked in the description. So if you want to hear more from each of our speakers, whether you're listening on YouTube or on our podcast forums, we will have all all of our speakers linked, whether linked now or in uh, our post-production, uh, uh, we will get that taken care of. So I have uh, in order here Salah, Justice, JF, and Hussein. We're going to take it through that order here. So Salah, one minute on the clock, your closing statements on our discussion tonight and where you think the uh, the future of this is headed. Yeah, sure. So first of all, Soha, as I mentioned, isn't my name. It's it's a YouTube channel I have, which actually Soha means to reconcile in Arabic. So that's really what what I think we should be talking about. Like, how do we reconcile between both people? And that really comes down to understanding uh, the concerns, fears, hopes and aspirations of, of both people. And and what's what's fundamental to the energy behind Zionism more than anything is a need for security and what's fundamental towards Palestine, the movement for Palestinian rights is a sense of justice. So let's look for a solution that provides security for Jews and justice for Palestinians. Let's accept Israel's right to exist, but let's also transform Israel to make it easier for Palestinians to accept Israel. All right. Uh, we have one more question come in here. So thank you for your closing statement. Uh, maybe this will stir a little bit more thought. Could the recent BRICS retaliation against the U.S. dollar mean the beginning of the world power change? And could it affect Israel-Palestinian conflict? That would be great, but it's a, it's a pipe dream. Uh, I think the U.S. still has domination of the world for maybe 20 to 40 years I think they will be superior in robotics, technology, mastering of technology in relation to AI. So they're still going to have a technological advance for many decades. I hate to say that I agree with JF. I hate to say that I agree with JF. Um, Again, looking back to the historical precedent, uh, the Six-Day War happened during a genuine multipolar world where the Soviet Union, along with its satellite states and allies, were supporting one side, and the United States, along with its satellites and allies, were supporting the other. And it didn't lead to some peace in the Middle East, you know, kumbaya situation. So this, I, this, this, uh, these hopes that are that are hung on the idea of multiple polarity are just people who don't understand history. Yeah, I'll agree with uh, Jeff Qaddafi. Uh, tried to create a unified Arab nations and uh, pan-Africanism with like investing heavily in Africa and North Africa, as well as the Middle East and wanting to make kind of like a USA of the Arab nations literally got assassinated when he wanted to be backed by gold standard as well, maybe backed, have his economy backed by real money. Um, So yeah, every time anyone tries to challenge the Western hegemony, they uh, get cooed, uh, toppled, Um, So, yeah, I don't uh, see it changing for a while. So, All right. Well, uh, let's give the floor to Justice. One minute for your closing there, buddy. All right. Again, thank you to Modern Day Debates for hosting this this debate. I think the thing that I'd like to say in my closing would be that it is important that we realize on both sides the historic claim that both Israelis and Arabs have to this part part of the world. Unless we all recognize that the, the there will be no peace, and going back and saying things like 
uh, Israelis are colonists or colonial powers or outposts of colonial powers or saying things like Arab, uh, the Palestinian nation people never existed. Arabs, the you know, Palestinians don't Palestinians don't exist. Arabs aren't Palestinians. Whatever is just not helpful. We need to look for solutions, and I su suggest that one of the solutions that we can find in this, or at least move towards, is uh, by promoting that the Western countries, like the United States, not uh, unilaterally arm uh, Israel, which could help um, give motivation for Israel to seek more peaceful solutions. A two-state solution most likely is what we should be shooting for, um, no pun intended. Uh, after the October 7th attacks, this is going to be a lot harder to do, but I think we would all agree that, that is the, the, the situation that we should be moving forward. But what we can do in the West, again, is by um, supporting policies and politicians who uh, understand that this is a nuanced and hard situation and arming one side um, just extends the problem. Right, I'll be so. very short for my conclusion. Uh, I appreciate the subtlety of the thoughts we heard tonight and the good faith of the people on the other side. Uh, but it's so far from reality because it's a theoretical peace situation that we're talking about, which is impossible to implement in reality, which doesn't even come to address the the, the factions uh, of extremists that we have on the Israeli side and on the Arab side. And the fact is, the Middle East is a big pile of shit, and it's going to remain as such. It's going to be conflict forever. It's an existential conflict. The Muslims are the ones who recognize it the most and who recognize it as a demographic race. Even within a temporary or local peace of some kind, it's still going to be a demographic race. It's a race for breeding, and it's called the theory of evolution. It applies to us just like it applies to every human, every animal on this earth. All right. Let me turn up my preamp there. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> from Hussein to everybody, I will preach you. <laughs> I don't know if Jeff saw the chat. <laughs> oh, man. You, uh, I just I, said I'll outbreed him. <laughs> the Muslims must win. <laughs> Inshallah. Well, um, all right, Hussein, you okay, got one anyways, minute. Um, <laughs> Thanks for that, buddy. That was So um <clears throat> I'll keep it brief too, uh, other than outbreeding, uh, you know, my fellow uh, atheists and Christians. <laughs> um, pretty much, I'd like to say that if there was justice, there really should be only one state, which would be Palestine, um, controlled by the majority um, because they have self-determination. That could include uh, Jewish people as well as Christians, as it did prior uh, under Islamic or Sharia law and then making a contract and all that. Don't have a problem with all that. Um, that would be what would be just to me. However, um, like they said, as a pragmatic point of view, um, we kind of just have to accept Israel's here and a two-state solution would be great. Um, I'm not denying that historically Jewish people didn't live there, um, just that Russian and people aren't native to the region. So <laughs> Russian and uh, Polish and all that. So anyways, uh, thanks for the conversation, everyone. It was actually pretty good. All right. Excellent. We're going to close it out there, everybody. So uh, make sure you hit the like and subscribe. Uh, I also, for all of our speakers, I put in our chat the link to the after show. So if you're going to be hanging out at uh, Matters Now, 
uh, for the after show. Definitely uh, check that out. We're going to be discussing what we heard tonight and uh, what other speakers and uh, maybe what you might think on the panel because it is going to be an open panel discussion. So uh, everybody hang out uh, in the Zoom call and, uh, you know, we'll uh, definitely chat about that. And uh, like I said, once again, keep a lookout for uh, the debates we have coming up on Modern Day Debate because we have all kinds of uh, juicy discussions uh, and and events coming up. So uh, we will keep you notified of that. In the meantime, keep sifting out the reasonable from the unreasonable or the unreasonable from the reasonable. However, James puts it, it doesn't matter. It's all the same to me. Take care, everybody. Good night. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.